This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry. Also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey everybody, Eric Bischoff here. And have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host John Alba every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business. And this is some straight up business talk here. No fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now. And listen at adfreeshows.com. champion and the host of Woo Nation, along with my multi-millionaire friend, <laughs> entrepreneur, playboy, oh etc., etc., and the second wealthiest man in the state of Alabama behind Dr. James Andrews, oh my gosh. Conrad Thompson. And Conrad, <laughs> as we talked about all week long today, we got a big one. Today is maybe the biggest guest we've ever had yeah, on Blue I'm Nation. I'm sure, and I mean, we're talking about Kevin Sullivan, Lawrence Taylor, Bruce Pritchard. Kurt Angle, Lord, on down Kurt the Angle line. Down line. Today we got a guy that's been involved in more wrestling than I have in half the period of his lifespan and been in some really good stuff and some stuff that probably, you know, we all have regrets about. And that's me, pawn on my ring, I'm sorry. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, today... Eric Bischoff, who I'm proud to call today my friend, and I'm going to say a couple of things before we get going, because if we're going to give you guys the best of, we're going to ask questions and have fun. But 
let me remind everybody that Eric Bischoff got me going in a bad time um, when I had a personal tragedy in my life. First guy to call me, if not the first, one of the first calls I took. And um, helped me out when I went to Australia with that wicked fourth witch wife of mine. <laughs> with Hulk. <laughs> I mean, and we've all seen some stuff. but And I've had on a personal relationship with Lori, his beautiful wife. I talk to his son, Garrett, at least once every two weeks. And I've been out with him and his beautiful daughter, Montana, many times. So we're friends today. We did war. We did feud. We did disagree. And on a personal note, the worst thing he ever asked me to do was in Birmingham, Alabama, when he asked me to put who over. What's the guy's name again? The Mexican guy. What was his name? Conan? Conan. Oh, <laughs> and I said, I, that, we're in Birmingham. I said, why am I doing this? He said, because I'm telling you to. So I'll get that off my chest. <laughs> and where's Conan now? Jesus Christ. Excuse me, Conan. Sorry, the Mexican guy. I'm not Donald Trump. I'm just... <laughs> There were so many of you on Raw at one time. We're off to a good start. <laughs> yeah, Arn's story was that uh, Arn's, Arn, Arn's story was that we had 400 Mexican workers on the show to protect the NWO. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Holy cow. Anyway. Eric, we're excited to have you, buddy. What are you up to these days? What's going on? Oh, well, I... I'm I'm in uh, you know I'm in Wyoming. My wife and I have a home here and have had one since uh, around '98 or so. And we bounce back and forth. You know, we, I watch the ducks. As soon as the ducks head south for the winter, we kind of follow them, and then we go down to Arizona where we've got a place, and uh, we just kind of bounce back and forth. So I'm I'm enjoying life. My my business partner and I, Jason Hervey, are producing TV shows, and I got a little beer brand I'm doing around the country, and you know just. Just enjoying life, really. Well, you're in a good spot. Is Lori still doing? She's doing some aerobic stuff, right? Yeah, she stays really busy. You know, she, she's she's got her own kind of life coaching practice that she's been doing now for a couple life of years. Coach. Okay, good. Yeah, she's been doing. Um, uh, she's been doing that for a while and has been studying it at, at different um, holistic health centers around the country. So she's staying real active and. and we're both really enjoying life now, probably as much or more than we ever have. How does studying in holistic health, what? what holistic word? health. Yeah, how, how does that work with you? You know what, Rick? I've, I've never, you know, I've always flirted with getting in shape and working out, but I've never really. No, no, been, I was it, with you when you were running, you were training for the marathon. I remember all that. Yeah, but, but it, it never interrupted comes... your twenty cores a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's, that's where I was the... going with the question. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's been kind of the story of my life. Is I'm either you know really intense about working out, or then I'll take you know four months off and five months off, and and you know live like a sailor on on shore leave. Yeah, well, um, that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's hard. I remember when Wahoo McDaniel said to me one time when Wahoo was getting older and I was just a young kid. And I said, why don't you come to the gym? He said, boy, I'm through working out. I've been working out 40 years. And I said, you know, I get it, you know. It's hard. To get, you have to be really motivated to get yourself to go every day and train and eat right and everything else. And I mean, I, I'm kind of living vicariously through Ashley right now, but... It's a battle every day as I'm sitting here right now drinking a Diet Coke and Conrad's got a Miller Light in his hand. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, sorry. 
Lori's well, been, been a great influence because, you know, my diet is, I've got a really great diet and have had for a long time. She's very committed to that. And I've started working out quite a bit recently, just, you know, cardio and stuff. I'm not looking at you throwing any weights around, but you know, I've dropped about 30 pounds in the last six weeks or so. Have you really? Yeah, I'm you down that, When I saw you last time, you weren't even heavy. When yeah, I saw you in San Diego, you weren't heavy at all. Yeah, I kind of go up and down, but I'm down to about 190 pounds, which is probably lighter than I've been since 1992 or three. So, I, but I feel really good. Well, cool. Well, good for you. And I'm, please pass my regards on to Lori in Montana. I talked to Garrett, so I know all he's doing. How about that beard, man? What the hell? <laughs> I, <laughs> that's so you know, that's so on Eric Bischoff like. <laughs> I just. I'm just hoping that stuff goes out of style because yeah. I can't wait for him to shave that thing off. Yeah, God, his wife's beautiful. Holy cow. There they go. They're a great couple. She's a sweetheart, too. She's a really, really nice yeah, person. Yeah, I remember. So is this the most interesting relationship in professional wrestling where you guys, you know, when you read your book, Rick, you see that you were kind of instrumental in helping Eric come into power when, when the powers that be came to you and asked your opinion well, here's the story. I don't. I don't. I think Eric remembers this. You know, I remember I came back, Eric from New York, right? And Ole Anderson says to me, "What good are you uh, to me after doing a uh, now lost on national after TV. putting over uh, Kurt Henning on national TV last night? It, the, when the, it was the second second raw, yeah, second yeah. raw ever, and I was so pissed off at him that I walked next door to Bob Dew and I go. Bob, it's me or him. He said, well, who could run the company? I said, there's a guy downstairs right now that's pretty creative. <laughs> do you remember that, Eric? Yeah, no, I do. It was a it was a crazy time. Yeah, uh, no, know, but I just for, said, I said, Ole just, he, Ole had lost it. He just, he was kind of like Vern. It had passed him by. It, it, and it passed him by. I mean, what the hell? I'm on Raw, WCW was in a... Terrible spot. Second fiddle. And Eric was down there and had just come from Minneapolis. You've been there for a while and doing all the TV. And I go, he, he's got a great idea. He's contemporary. He's fun. And he likes to eat the, the Chinese food with me and eat kimchi. So <laughs> <laughs> how much of that did we have at noon? Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it, it was a crazy time. And, you know, I look back at it now and, you know, it, it's hard to imagine all the different things that transpired. You know, the Bill Watts era, yeah. you know, coming in and going, and all the controversy. Well, Bill's the one that hired me, and I came back, and I fired Bill for some crack about Hank Aaron. Yeah. And then Ole was there, and then I, I just said, I can't work with this. I went, and I've known Do forever. I said, Bob, I just can't. This, I'm not. Didn't come back for this, you know. I mean, right. So then, go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Just want to. No, it's funny we're talking about Ole, and you know, and I told this story before. But it's worth telling again, especially here because you you knew him so well. You knew Blackjack Mulligan as well. Yeah, you know you were close to him. But you know, I I had hired you know, and this is after I got a little bit of control and kind of was in management. And I I, I liked Ole. You know, you're right. He was very much like Vern. You know, and there were, he was just so stubborn and pigheaded. Oh, but yeah. there was something about him that I just really liked and respected. So I, you know, he certainly was an office, you know, CNN center, you know, South Tower kind of a guy. But I didn't want to lose him either, so I sent him down to the power plant. I figured, yeah. well, I can't, he can't hurt anything down there. And he really was good at teaching because he was passionate about yeah. the art form. So I thought, well, that's, you know, that's a good place for him. He'll be happier and blah, 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 blah. Well, let me shut this phone off. Um, 
I moved him down there, but <clears throat> I had also had recently hired Blackjack Mulligan. And, and I did it, I don't want to say as a favor because that's disrespectful, but you know, I wasn't looking to hire someone like Blackjack, but he came along at a certain amount, of, at a certain time. And, yeah. and, and I don't remember who it was that told me he was a little bit down on his luck. And, and I thought, you know, with all the years of skill and experience and all that, he'd be a good guy to have down the power plant. So I hired him. And, and Blackjack was a very, very loyal guy. Yeah. And one day, Ole didn't like the fact that I moved him out of the South Towers and the fact that I was gaining control. He just resented it. And, and I, you know, I understood it. I didn't take it personally. But Ole made the mistake by going down to the fire plant and just bad-mouthing me up one end and down the other, you know, telling everybody who would listen what a yeah, piece of crap I was. And Blackjack knocked him out. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, not the first time, Eric. That's gone down. That's gone down. I've seen that happen five times. Don't and, think, you know, Rick, but Black you, don't, you, don't, a, you don't screw around with Jack Mulligan, man. He, <laughs> he had a fist. He probably still does the size of, size of a small refrigerator. Well, he, actually, he's dying as we speak. No, I've, he, I've, I've kept up a little he, bit. He weighs almost 500 pounds. Oh, I, my I, goodness. I was with Mike Rotundo, his son-in-law, yesterday, and... Uh, I mean, I keep up with Jack. I mean, I I, have, I can't say enough good about Jack Mulligan. But boy, going back to how tough he was, I mean, he slapped. I've seen him slap Ole over the years. Uh, I not not punch him, but I've seen him slap Ole at least five times. I did not see that, but I don't I don't doubt that for a second because Jack. I mean, I was there when he sucker punched Harley Race and Andre the Giant. Jack had wow. Jack Jack was just. <laughs> but it says a lot about his loyalty to take up for Eric, you know. At the yeah, power well, he didn't like, like Ole anyway. And, I, and if you gave him a job, <laughs> no, if you gave him a job, and I'm sure he thought highly of the fact you gave him the opportunity, and Jack's a loyal guy. I mean, he just, but there's no there's no denying how tough he is, man. Holy cow. My greatest story is he, uh, before you came along there, um, Eric, um, when George Scott was booking, he hired Jack. Um, this is right after, I'm trying to think, after Crockett sold out. And uh, to be an agent. And um, George Scott was booking even then for WCW? I thought he had left once WWE no, no, he came went, back. He just came for a couple months. Okay. And uh, okay. so he hired Jack, you know, and uh, we were in Marietta. I tell this story all the time <laughs> because it's a great, and Jack was wearing a sport coat and tie, and he was sweating. Trying to be corporate. Smoking a Salem cigarette and all that. And he was telling Luger that it likes, it's phenomenal because I thought he was going to die right there. He was telling Lex Luger that he had to wrestle um, Dutch Mantel. Dutch Mantel. And Luger looked at him and said, um, So, um, why would a Lex Luger, like in the third person, wrestle Dutch Mantel? <laughs> and, and you know, Lex could say that, and you know, you you know the mentality I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And Jack <laughs> puffed on that Salem and put it on the floor and stopped and walked out the door. I thought he was going to punch Luger. I said, <laughs> "Look at Luger." I said, "Jesus." That's not a smart thing to say to a guy like him. And Jack quit. He walked out the door. I never saw him again. You know, he said to me, he called me and I said, I can't do this. These kids don't have a clue. 
You know, they, perfect example of of you know just a clash of cultures. You know the, the oh yeah. You know Lex was a was a new generation yeah, guy of course. at that I mean, time and yeah. And, no, I know, but the third person thing of just it exhausted everybody. I mean, it was, <laughs> but but that but that's what it was, and it's the way people talk. But Jack was I, instead of smacking him, which I've seen him do. God, everybody, what was the karate guy's name? He almost killed in Birmingham. Um, who was that Flynn? guy? Huh? Flynn? Ernest? Miller? No, 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 no. Uh, Swanker or Swinger? I can't remember. But yeah, Jack just. He just had a real short uh, attention span and was impatient with people that wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't listen to authority. So. so circling back to when he took over for WCW, Eric, I recently saw a shoot interview or a disc, or I'm not exactly sure where it was. I saw it, but you made a comment. You know, what was it like when you took over a company that was in the red and you were excited to be at the helm and, and you, you, you commented something along the lines of, knowing what I know now, I'm not sure that I would have been... You know, so eager to jump at that opportunity, but back then I just didn't know any better, and I'm kind of interested to hear your perspective on that because at the time when you took over, WCW had never turned a profit, and now you go from kind of TV guy, and I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, but TV sales guy to now you're running the company, and it had previously been ran by you know old school traditional wrestling guys, and now here you are, and it's already losing money. What must have you know? What was that like? Well, I was, you know, it was, I was a lot younger. It was a big opportunity, and, and and I had no fear at that time, you know, from from a career perspective. I I had everything to gain and nothing to lose, and I had known, you know, I, I talked to several people, you know, that were senior management at Turner Broadcasting, and after the Bill Watts mess and all the controversy surrounding it. Um, that was really quite embarrassing for the Turner organization, and, and quite frankly, Ted Turner himself, who was the only real supporter of WCW. Everybody else in the North Tower that was a member of the WCW, or excuse me, the Turner Executive Committee, wanted to pull the plug on WCW, and, and had wanted to pull the plug on it for a number of years. Ted was the only reason it didn't happen. But when the Bill Watts um, mess hit the fan, um, that was kind of the last straw, and essentially what I was told by Bill Shaw uh, before taking the job was, look, if, if we don't turn this company around and, and if, we, if we don't prevent the kind of embarrassing, headline-grabbing messes that had just been caused by Bill Watts, you know, Ted himself is going to pull the plug on this company. So at that point, you know, I felt like, okay, I've got nothing to lose because if somebody doesn't do something, if we don't turn this thing around, I'm going to end up losing my gig anyway. And I just had no fear of failure at that time and at that age. That's the best way to say it. I did not have a fear of failure. I had a thirst and a hunger for success and survival, but I had zero fear fear of failure. Um, now, at this stage in my life, you know, at 60 years old and having, you know, failed as often as I've succeeded, I probably look at it a little differently. But back then, man, it was just all, it was fresh meat. This episode is brought to you by Zen Nicotine Pouches, a fresh way to enjoy nicotine without all the baggage of cigarettes, dip, or vape. That's right, no more smelling like an ashtray, no more spit cups, and no batteries to charge or leaky equipment to deal with. Zen Nicotine Pouches are smoke-free, spit-free, and available in 10 varieties like Spearmint, Wintergreen, Citrus, and many more. 
And for your convenience, each variety comes in two strengths, so you can easily find the satisfaction level that's perfect for you. Zen, America's number one nicotine pouch, is available in over 100,000 locations nationwide, meaning it's never been easier to find your Zen. Find your Zen by heading over to zen.com slash find to locate a store near you. That's ZYN.com slash find warning. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So circling back a few years before that, I don't know how many people really know this, but you actually had a tryout with WWE to work as an on-air personality. How did that go about? And, and you know, what happened there? Well, you know, I had been working for Vern Gagne since about 1987. That's when I started with Vern and you know, I didn't know, I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't completely naive to, to what was going on with Vern, but I was so excited to work with Vern in particular, because I, I and I wrestled in high school in, in Minnesota and had met Vern and kind of looked up to him. He was like the local hero and, you know, watched everybody come through it. I was a huge wrestling fan. So the opportunity to work for Vern Gotti was, was a big deal for me, and and. Because it was such a big deal, I didn't look too closely at what he was doing and whether it was a good career move for me or not. I was just passionate and excited. Now, when Vern hired me, he was kind of on, he'd been getting his ass kicked pretty good. Financially, he was funding the company, you know, out of his own, you know, personal um, retirement and wealth and the money that he had made over the years. He wasn't really making any money. He had lost a lot of his big name talent. You know, Gene Oakland, Hulk Hogan, you know, Kurt Henning, you know, so many Rick Roots, so many people had left to go to the WWF at that time, now WWE, that Vern was hanging on by a thread. I didn't know that, at least not to the extent I should, should have. But the good news was, when I went to work for Vern, you know, he hired me as, you know, syndication sales. I was a salesman when Vern hired me. That's what I did. And he put me into syndication, and I did okay at that. And then I got to learn a little bit about production, and I eventually learned how to edit. I learned how to run a camera, and I ended up, you know, serendipitously, you know, in front of a camera, just because the lead announcer ended up getting thrown in jail the night before. So all these, I got exposed to all of these elements, you know, within the business of the wrestling business. But as exciting as that was, Vern had gotten to the point by 1991 where he was he, he was done. I mean, it was, it was, I had gone for months and months and months without a paycheck. Um, I was facing, or not, I didn't, was facing, I was in the midst of a personal bankruptcy. I was having my cars literally, you know, repossessed out of my driveway. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a bad time. I, I had two young kids that I was feeding rice and beans because that's all we could afford. And it was, it was tough. And then I saw an ad in the Minneapolis paper that the WWF had put in there looking for an announcer. And I, I went to Vern and, and said, Vern, you know, do you mind? Got out of respect because I was, you know, close to Vern on a personal level. I just respected the hell out of him and Greg. And they both said, you know, do what you got to do, Eric. You got to feed your family. So I went down and I, you know, I wasn't excited about leaving AWA because of my relationship there and my comfort. But at the same time, I knew that, you know, trying out for WWF or WWE now was a could be a game changer for me and my family. So I was excited. And it, it, it was, I still remember to this day, I flew into LaGuardia the other day, and I was coming down the same terminal that I, I did back in 1991, and I reflected back on that. It was, it was an 
amazingly exciting time, but I suck. <laughs> I look back at it now, and people send me that clip, and I look at it and go, oh, my God. That was horrible. Who, who but it was exciting. Who were his announcers back then? Uh, he had... Uh... You know, Bobby Heenan, Bobby Heenan, Gorilla Monsoon, Jesse Ventura. Gotcha, okay. Tony Schiavone was there for a little while. Yeah, I, was, I was trying Sean to figure Rooney. out where, where, where uh, Tony, because Tony called me. He was just dying to come back. He was there about six months, and the schedule was killing him. So, um, Yeah, I, I think the role that they were, and I, you know, I could, it was a long time ago, so I don't know if I remember this, but I think it was more of a, you know, hosting the third string syndication, you know, type shows and kind of the same thing I was hired for at WCW, quite frankly. Kind of being the third string or fourth string announcer, doing some international, you know, tracks and things like that. I certainly wasn't up for, uh, you know, the primetime shows. So, Eric, talking about that WWE tryout or WWF at the time, is that something you would have met Vince at or Kevin Dunn or who would you conduct that with, the, the whole tryout concept? You know, it was, it was kind of weird. <clears throat> now, I, I don't, I think if I met Vince, it was very briefly. Like, hey, how are you? You know, thanks for coming in. Blah, 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 blah. It was a very, very brief exchange. And then he went one way and I was taken into the studio. And I, I never met Kevin Dunn face-to-face at that point, but... I believe it was Vince and Kevin, and I could be wrong, but I believe it was Vince and Kevin who were, you know, I was standing on camera in front of a chroma key screen that had a, you know, looked like a big crowd behind me, and they were just talking to me over the intercom saying, okay, now do this. Okay, now try to do this. And here's a broom. Interview the broom. (laughs) And in in between that, they would ask me questions. You know, how's Vern doing? What's going on? You still got the big house out in Mountain, Minnesota type of thing. Conversational. And then they would give me direction, and I would attempt to do what they were looking for. But it was pretty quick, really. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I know a lot of folks have always kind of wondered what the behind the scenes of that looks like. Because, I mean, everyone is fascinated with your story, Eric, that you went from you know television guy to then really igniting the Monday Night Wars in the hottest era in the history of wrestling. And uh, But before all that happened... Uh, this is something we get requested to talk about a lot, and Rick, we've never talked about this on the show, but people want to talk about North Korea and how the hell that came about. Uh, and you've told me, you know, privately, Rick, how weird that was for you. But uh, Eric, share the story. W- what happened to you know? Well, here, let me just first of all, I'm going to interject here because I remember exactly as we sat at that Chinese restaurant or referred to earlier. When somebody looked at me and said, you're going to be more famous than Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> and I said, really? <laughs> okay. So what, what, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> yeah. By the way, he's got two Super Bowl rings and I'm going to North Korea. I'm going because Eric goes, let me put it to you like this, Rick. George Foreman won't go. Hogan said no. And Sting said no. So... What do you think? <laughs> I said, I'm going to go. I, it, first of all, it was me, Eric, Muhammad Ali, Jane, Ted, and uh, former president um, Jimmy Carter. And by the time we got to the airport, it was me, Eric, and Sonny Ono. <laughs> <laughs> who, by the, who, by the way, I want to kill. I'm sure you do, too. We'll discuss him later on. He's another one of your mercy children like Paige. Good Lord. 
Sonny Ono at the car salesman from Iowa. Good Lord. <laughs> He's, I sued the company and got rich. I, I don't know why I didn't keep my lawsuit in place. Everybody got paid. Oh it's terrible. Freight oh, train, all hard. these guys. Harry gave him a job. And when the company closed, they all sued him. Oh, God. Anyway, go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. I have to... I have to remind you these things because I was texting Eric. These guys are telling me I wasn't texting them. I was calling them, panicking. Meet me in the fire. Meet me in the in the hall or in the fire escape, man. These guys want me to say. Remember, Eric? They wanted me to say something to Mike Chinoy or whatever the guys was from CNN about how I knew North Korea could beat the United States if we ever went to war. And I was going, Eric. Wait, I can't wait, say wait, that. wait, wait. You need to expand on that. Talk me through what you just okay. said. Okay. They, they they partitioned. They put Eric. They, North Korea government. The North Korean government put Eric and the guys at one hotel. They put me at another, and they put uh, Steiner. Or not, they put Eric with the Steiners and Norton, who got in trouble for talking on the phone. And then, so they come to me, and they say, before we leave, and they kept us, Eric, I'm wrong, three days longer than they were supposed to. And... Uh, they wanted me to make a statement to the effect that North Korea would, if they elected to go to war with the United States, would demolish the United States. And I said, Eric, I can't say that. He said, well, try and figure out something. So I said, well, well meet me on the fire escape with your man so we can talk. I was so paranoid because I shut off Scott Norton. Now, yeah, uh, follow up on that. Scott Norton Scott got Norton in trouble was on talking phone, on the phone. Talking to Tammy, his wife, and he was, you know, complaining about the conditions probably a little with a little language stronger than what I just mentioned. And they turned off his phone. You remember that, Eric, right? Well, they, they turned off his phone. They wouldn't service his room. They stripped his bed. Yeah, it was I mean, they, more to they, it than they, that, see? They, they did everything but ransack the entire hotel room. And that was, yeah, that was the government doing it because of what they heard him say to his wife over the phone. Yeah, well, do you remember, do you remember me asking you what, what I could do for a choice of words besides that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, look, they did they did it to a lot of us. You know, yeah. they, they, the oh, whole trip. I was scared and, to death. I'll go, I'll go back to how the trip came about. Um, I had, you know, because of my proximity, if you will, to, to Ted Turner and <clears throat> some of the people around Ted, I had been approached by Antonio Inoki and in, I think it was 94, to see if I could put Antonio Inoki in touch with Muhammad Ali because they had lost they had lost touch over the years. And I said, sure, I'm happy to help 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 you do that. So well, Antonio Nelke flew over from Japan with a group of other people from the office, and they met um, Muhammad was going to be in Denver that week. So Muhammad was going to be in Denver. I flew in with Sonny and Sonny Ono and to act as an interpreter if, if, if and when necessary. And we all met in, in Denver, and it was more or less a photo op for Antonio Inoki more than anything else. But it went really, really well. They hadn't seen each other in many, many years, so it, it went well. And then about six months later, <clears throat> or whatever it was, I lost you know, I track of the timeline, but at some point afterwards, I got a phone call from Brad Ringens, who was working. Brad's from Minnesota. You know, he's... Super guy, you know, amateur wrestler, made the Olympic team uh, in Greco-Roman. Really amazing guy. 76 Olympian. Bro yeah. Bronze medal. Yep. Montreal. Yep. yep. 
And and he and I had been friends since high school. He he wrestled. He was a year older than me, and he wrestled at a different school than I did. But we'd see each other at regional tournaments, and I never made it to state, but obviously Brad did. But we we knew of each other. We weren't tight, but we knew of each other pretty well. Anyway, long story short, Brad called me because he was working for New Japan. And said, "Hey, Mister Noki, you know, would like to invite you know you and a group of your your people over and be a part of this peace festival." that he's sponsoring and a part of over in North Korea. And kind of like kind of what I said to you early, earlier, you know, I just had no fear. I, I said, wow, North Korea? Nobody goes to North Korea. That means I want to go. I want to do something nobody's ever done before. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, and I thought it was exciting. And, and I thought, well, I better, I better check and make sure I'm not going to go to jail for that because they were kind of on the list of countries that, you know, if you're a U.S. citizen, you can't go to. So I, I checked it out and talked to some people I knew at CNN, and they said, yeah, it's illegal. You're not supposed to do it. I said, well, what happens if I do? He said, yeah, the worst thing they're going to do is lock you in a room and ask you questions for about five hours and slap you in the wrist. I said, well, hell, then we're going. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I put together the group you know, with WCW, and, and Rick's right. You know, I asked around, and yeah, I didn't want to force anybody to go, obviously. <laughs> but we wanted, you know, we wanted the biggest names we could bring. And a couple people, you know, Hogan just scratched his Fu Manchu and said, nah, brother, can't make that one. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and a couple other people were just, you know, they were just too nervous about it. And that, that was so you, you, you came to the mark. <laughs> no, nah, but Ricky, look, you, you, it was the idea of going somewhere big. And well, let, let, let me I, I want to, I got to, we told the story. I've got to tell you, because... Okay, number one, first class airfare for me and my wife and Reed. Remember? Yep. And uh, is Lori with Reed you? Reed to North Carolina, North Korea? No, I took him to Tokyo. Okay, okay. Okay, we, but when we got back to Japan, we had some major fun. I mean, Eric, I'm not the Seahawk yeah. Hotel and all that, right? Yeah. And, and then is Lori with you right now? No. And, uh, of course, uh, Beth brought her best girlfriend, Susan Beck, who, um, ooh, la, 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 la. Okay, let's talk about wrestling. 195,000 people. Come you on. I want to make sure Eric remembers giving, all I'm this. I'm giving Eric oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, uh, yeah, it was phenomenal. You know a lot of people listen to this, right? I didn't say anything wrong. I'm what, just saying, okay, if, okay. Hey, Susan, if you're guilty, you're guilty. <laughs> 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 we love you, Lori. I don't know what to say right now. I'm just going to let you know. I didn't say they did anything, but, you know. No, I was just complimenting her. Someone She's a lovely a lady. With, but we went to the Seahawk Hotel when we came back, and we went to that festival, and like a mark, I gave Anoki a piece of jewelry I had. Remember, Eric? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I never got that back or anything else. But, <laughs> no, we, but we did have a good time. And I mean, one thing about Eric and I, man, we like to have fun, and we have had some damn good times over the years. I'm still pissed it. off about you getting me, you know, that little punk Ellis. I bought that damn <laughs> $32,000 motorcycle I rode for a mile and a half that I never got a title for from Ellis. <laughs> it's that's a, that sounds about right. Yeah, please. Well, go ahead. <laughs> okay, wait, 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 wait. I'm changing the draft. You did. All right, we'll circle back yeah, to Eric and I have had a lot of, in spite of all our disagreements. You went to years, a Road Wild deal in Sturgis, bought I a motorcycle. Sturgis, and everybody was having fun. Eric said, come ride the motorcycles, Mongo, and everybody rubbing a ball. 
I go, I haven't got a motorcycle. He said, well, they got them on display over here. So the guy wanted $32,000 for this iron horse tricked out. So I gave Ellis thirty two grand, and I was riding the bike up the road the next day to Cheyenne. And by the way, not that this matters, but it's a great story, and it's part of the story, which is important. I'm the only guy in the world that could find a massage parlor for me and Tony Schiavone in Cheyenne, Wyoming. <laughs> now, yeah. A good massage parlor? Oh, yeah, 30 miles out of town. But a good one. Yeah, I mean, they served, you know, uh, uh, sake and Chinese food or Japanese food. That was great. Rub and tug? <laughs> uh, I don't know what the tug, but rub. <laughs> Selective memory on the tug. <laughs> but no, but. There's nothing wrong with feeling good either. Rick, uh, you, you've told me that you absolutely love Athletic Greens. We got you hooked on the AG1. You're taking it every single morning with one delicious scoop of AG1. You're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. It's going to help you start your day right. It's going to help you with all your things, your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, your aging. And what I like about it, well, Megan actually had me on this long before they were a sponsor of our show. It contains less than one gram of sugar. There's no GMOs. There's no nasty chemicals. There's no artificial anything, and it still tastes good. But more importantly, it supports better sleep quality and recovery, better mental clarity and alertness. It's also lifestyle friendly. Whether you're eating keto or paleo or vegan or dairy or gluten-free, this checks all the boxes. But don't take mine and Rick's word for it. Athletic Greens has more than 7,000 five-star reviews. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash flare. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash flare to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance no, Eric and I, for all our arguments, had some damn good times together. Jesus. So you bought a motorcycle, drove yes, it a I mile did, yeah. and a half. I, I rode it 180 miles to Cheyenne. Where's the motorcycle now? What'd you do with it? Oh, that's in divorce number three. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Who can keep up? Yeah, I can't. You're right. <laughs> yeah, by so, the way, congratulations on staying married, Eric. You're one of the few, to, and God bless you for it, that has handled, whose wife has negotiated all this crap. And done everything we've done. I mean, from the, I mean, working for Eric, we would stay at the Grand Floridian. I mean, you know, in a suite. How rough was that when we were doing Disney? Or we stayed at the, uh, what was the other property with the running river, Eric, that was so nice? Oh, God, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. And we went to the Swan every night for sushi, you and I in Oakland. I mean, it wasn't a bad gig. <laughs> it wasn't at all. No, it really. We had so much fun. I mean, but oh, it was the, it was the yacht club, Rick. It was the yacht, yacht club. club. Yacht club was great. I mean, are you kidding me? The wives partied all day. We went to work for a couple hours over at the park and came back and ate sushi and drank all night. I mean, karaoke, the Swan. What a great, <laughs> great memory. A lot. Well, so anyway, Conrad just stepped out for a second. Um. The next thing, I mean, I there's so much, Eric, with you and I. It could go on forever, but I was like, I always go back to when we were staying at that place on Canada, uh, driving Orlando, right? And twists and turns in the business and all that. But do you remember the day when that Rude came in and was demanding 
to almost have Sting's spot. I do. There was yeah. there was a lot going on. In fact, I think Root Root had the title. I think at that point. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he did or not. I mean, I just you know, it's I I feel terrible about um, what happened to him in his personal life and that. But he he, he was it was difficult back then. Because I remember, you, I remember he walked you out to the car and opened the trunk. You, you'll be, you, I just have a great memory. Remember, he, he's, the gun was in the trunk and told you whatever he said to you. I mean, it was terrible. Well, it, you know, it's, what was funny is, <clears throat> I, you know, I had known Rick since right high school. After high yeah, school. you guys are all together. You know, we, we all kind of grew up in the same you know, zip code, so to speak, and hung out at the same bars. And, you know, we didn't hang out together at that time. But we knew a lot of, we had a lot of mutual friends and acquaintances, and I'd see him, you know, I'd see him on the weekends, and you know, I was pretty aware of Rick's, you know, capabilities as far as being a, a, a tough guy and all yeah, that. Yeah, was. And then as, as, you know, once we started working together, I always got along really, really well with Rick. You know, it was probably because of the Minnesota connection. In fact, he and I rode together right after I first got hired by WCW. He and I rode, you know, down to Macon TV together and Gainesville TV together. And we, we started becoming pretty pretty close friends. And when, and I don't even remember the details of what led up to, you know, that, that situation in Orlando, but I remember he had, he had physical control over the belt. And I no, that, that's what it was. And he would, he was, he was like telling you and me. Remember, he was going to kill me in Philadelphia. Remember that night he came in the locker room. Yeah, I actually, I, I brought Barry Windham in there, and I, I said, Barry, just you know, whatever happens, happens. Don't yeah. jump in and, until it's absolutely necessary. But if it's going to be, you know, permanent injuries, you know, just be around. <laughs> yeah, no, he was going to kill me because I, but he, I mean, he thought everybody was against him. Yeah. And it, it is what it was. I mean, he was, you know, he was impaired in the ring. And, you know, it's like I loved Kerry Von Erich, but Kerry was impaired a lot, right? Wow. And Rick was getting to that point. And um, I'm not sure what happened, but he was, like, screaming at me. And then he was hollering at Eric. And, and nothing ever happened, but it was just, you know, it was a, one of those things that was a, a, a an awkward situation for everybody involved. And... Uh, but what I was telling you, I mean, you missed the thing. We were in Orlando, and we did these booking things, and it was me and Kevin and Eric and whoever else, and uh, it was like a, you know an easy gig. We had a lot of fun in Orlando, right? But right. Rude came up and got Eric and took him outside, and did did, did he point the gun at you, or did he just have it in the car? No, he knew. I you know I told him. I said, Rick, I got to get the title back. You know, yeah, well, enough is yeah. enough, and. And he and I ended up walking out to his car, and I, again, I just, I don't know why I wasn't afraid. Maybe I was too stupid. Um, well, I was afraid for you. <laughs> I, I just, and, and maybe it was because deep down inside, I, you know, I knew Rude wasn't really, he was hot at a situation, he was angry at a lot of things, but I had never really done anything to him. And look, Rick, Rick None Rude of had. Rick, Rick, Rick Rude could have torn my head off and, and not even dropped the beer that was in his other hand while he was doing it. Wow. So it, it and I knew that. And I, but whatever reason, I walked out to his car, he opens up his trunk, and there's the belt sitting there right next to a three fifty seven. And he just kind of looked in the trunk, and he looked at me, and he reached in, and I thought, well, <laughs> here it goes. Yeah. And, he, and he grabbed the belt. And he yeah. handed it to me. And he, I think that, you know, he made a statement, you know, 
and, and that was the end of it. Nothing, nothing happened after that, really. Uh, well, that, but that, it was an awkward moment. Yeah, it, the <laughs> whole thing was awkward. Yeah, it's it funny was, because I, I, I've told people these stories, and Eric, you could, Eric, Eric can vouch for it. The problem, I mean, this is the whole. That's why this could be like a three-hour podcast. We it really could. Too. Yeah. The problem is, is that when Hulk came, right? Right. He wouldn't work with Vader, and he called Rick the Tasmanian Devil. He wouldn't work with Rick. And to this day, Hulk Hogan, after all the time in WWE and WCW, Rick Hulk never wrestled a Rick Rude. Correct, Eric? Yeah. Never. He wouldn't do it. He called I mean, him a Tasmanian Devil. And he probably devil. should have in WWF because as soon as Warrior won, they, they programmed him with Rude. Yeah, but what happened was is uh, Rude had, had kicked, beat up the Warrior in Savannah bad in the locker room. And that just kind of sent a message because Warrior had said something about Rude. You know that story, right, Eric? No, I don't no, know No, I had not heard that. Okay, well, WWE, apparently the Warrior made some remark probably just you know, in passing but that wasn't even a time when the, like uh, social media was like it is now, right? But it was like one of those things like Rude, Rude's not good enough to you know get a shot at the title or oh, whatever, right? Yeah. So Rude, man, <laughs> he got to Savannah that night. The building we've been at, Eric, and he walked in the dressing room across across the kitchen and and kicked uh, and beat up the warrior pretty good. True story. Wow. I wasn't even there then, but I mean, if everybody knew about it, if you were in the business, right? Yeah, I mean, he so he just put himself in a position uh, where Hulk wouldn't wrestle him at, WC, at uh, WWE, and when he got when he came when Hulk came with us, um, which was another trip when Eric and I went and got Hulk in Orlando. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. So, well, let me just finish. But he, he to this day, Hulk has never Hulk and Rude have never worked in the ring. Which which is strange. I mean, it, he just refused to do it. He finally gave in to Vader, but he would not wrestle Rick. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. I I was just asking about the whole Hulk Hogan situation because, you know, Eric Bischoff is most commonly associated with two guys, and it's mm -hmm. Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, and one maybe for different reasons than the other. But when the WCW was finally starting to say, okay, we're going to make a run at this under Eric's tutelage. It became a situation where he wanted to go out and sign Hulk, and the talk is you kind of helped facilitate that, Rick. Talk us through how Hulk Hogan came to WCW and what that meant for WCW at the time, and, and that's for both guys, I guess, both Eric and Rick. Well, I, I know what, exactly what happened. I mean, Eric, you correct me if I'm wrong. Eric said, can you get a hold of Hogan? And I said, yeah. I said, you, you get along with him? I said, I get along with him great. I'm going to have a good time in New York with him, and he was filming Thunder in Paradise in Orlando. So I called Hulk and I said, um, these are my exact words. I said, I don't know what this means and I'm not sure you're even interested, but I'm the guy that I'm going to bring down to you is, you know, the head of Turner now and they got a lot of money. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much what I said to him. He said, well, come on down. So we got in the car, Eric and I drove through the woods for two hours. <laughs> and he, he had a trailer there and I sat in the car and... Uh, or did something, Eric went and talked to Hulk for an hour and a half, and we came back, and he said, we got him. And then about a month later, or two months later, we did the same thing with with uh, uh, Macho. Yeah, Macho. So we, we this time we flew down to St. Pete and checked that old hotel. Remember, Eric? Yeah. Yeah, and then Macho. But, I mean, it was, you know, and Eric had the power, and he had the money. And, you know, and the company 
Uh, now, Brad Siegel in particular was looking for that marquee value, you know. Support for To Be The Man is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. The best. No one else. No one else. It's Manscaped, and their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They can rhyme, and they have a performance package, which is Manscaped's performance package, which is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. That's about 8 8 million balls, folks. And they have an exclusive offer for you, and we are going to join them because it's 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code NATUREBOY at manscaped.com. That's right. Just drop the name Nature Boy and you get your balls trimmed to 20% off. And if you've lived this life for, I don't know, a few decades like I have, uh, shaving your junk was not always easy. It was a, it was a adventure. And eventually, you know, the best we could do are those electric shavers for your face. And they ain't made for that. They ain't made for that. We don't need that. And along came this little company we heard about on a podcast and now they've taken over the world. And here they are again, Manscaped, with their best lawn mower of all time, the 4.0. Now, it's a game changer, and it's, the, it's dare I say, the future of ball grooming. And I don't say that lightly. And dare I say also the greatest ball trimmer ever. I don't say that lightly either. And it, it this uh, fourth generation, that's why it's 4.0, features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. No one wants... What sounds worse than grooming accidents when we're talking about our balls? Uh, Nothing. And it's reduced. And also, it's waterproof. So you're not going to make a mess. And you got a 400K LED spotlight in case you want to shine that shit up really, really bright. Like, really bright. And see it in all of its glory as you trim it down to a respectable length and a presentable length uh, with that light. Man, you'll see it. Your neighbors will see it. Everybody will see it. Uh, the Weed Whacker, of course, is waterproof and provides skin-safe technology, which is proprietary, which helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs. Man, that is a, that sounds like the worst cereal on earth. Uh, in those delicate nose holes. Uh, so that's the Weed Whacker. And the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, it'll change the way you approach your hygiene routine. And Manscaped even threw in two free gifts uh, to their Performance Package 4.0. The boxers and the shed travel bag. Bring your comfort and boxers to another level. It's time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping with code NatureBoy. Now, for real, Manscaped has changed the game, and it is an essential part of your grooming, your grooming system, and your grooming accessories. And if you you gotta be presentable, you gotta be hygienic, and the best in the game are Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NATUREBOY at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code NATUREBOY. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Now back to the show. But Rick, at the time, you were the number one guy, you know, there's a debate about this, but you were the number one guy for WCWs, and you help recruit what was the number one guy in the history of the business. Uh So it almost is like you're signing up to be number two and doing that knowingly. I mean, did you think about it that way, or is that not something that crossed your mind, or did you just so focused on doing good for the company that that didn't really... No, no, I was focused on having someone to work with. Because I love working with Hulk. I mean... People are going to say what they want to say, you know, whatever. But 
working with Hulk Hogan was the easiest job I've ever had in my life. I mean, and I'll, 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 jump, I'll jump in here a little bit, Conrad, too. And there, there was some, and Rich Wright, the, the, the background that he gave you is absolutely correct. But there, were, there had been a couple conversations with Hulk. You know, he, the, first, the first night, I think Rick maybe gave him his, my phone number for the very first conversation. And Hulk called me because I, I remember it was like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. I was in bed, and, and I answered the phone. And, and, you know, Hulk's got a pretty distinctive voice, like, much like Rick does. And I knew immediately it was... He goes, hey, brother, Hulk Hogan here. I'm like, oh, shit, it's Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and, you know, I had a real, like, two-minute conversation with that. And then Rick and I went down and, and met with him. But the, the challenge was Hulk, you know, obviously Rick had set the table really, really well. And Hulk being, you know, the kind of guy that is looking for an opportunity, if it's a good one, um, was anxious to meet with us. And he was anxious to make a move. You know, but we had two things. We had more than two things, but we essentially had two or three things that, that Hulk was really interested in. One was the money. It is what it is. The other was the light schedule, because Hulk could come to work for WCW, and instead of being on the road 250 days a year or even 180 days a year, he could come in and make some big money, do four pay-per-views a year, a couple of TVs here and there to support those pay-per-views, and call it a day. So that was very appealing to him. And as appealing as that was, his, his biggest issue, though, wasn't the money or the schedule. It was who he was going to work with because he didn't trust very many people. And I don't mean trust them, you know, as far as buying a car from them, but I mean trust them in the ring and, 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 and know that he could get in the ring with somebody and have the greatest match possible, you know, with, within, you know, within his abilities. And he didn't want, you know, he didn't want to come over to WCW, make a big splash, make a lot of headlines, and get in the ring with somebody like Vader that he didn't know, nor did he trust, or Rick Rude, um, or anybody that wasn't going to, you know, put 100% effort into making Hulk look as great as Hulk could look. But Hulk knew that Ric Flair was that guy. Hulk knew that if he was, that he had a program with Rick, that... He could trust Rick. He knew that Rick would make him look like a zillion dollars in the ring, regardless of anything. Rick would make him look the best he could possibly look. And, and Hulk trusted Rick. So it was, money was the condition, like one of the conditions, but the precedent was, you know, if we're going to do this, I've got to be in a long-term program with Rick Rude first. Or excuse me, with Rick Flair first. So that's, not only did Rick connect us by setting the table, but without Rick's effort in convincing Hulk that creatively, because that was another big thing, it wasn't just what happened in the ring, but Hulk was very concerned that there wasn't going to be a lot of, and you know what I mean when I say this, Rick, a lot of the political, you know, locker room kind of backstabbing. There's a million yeah, yeah, ways yeah. you can make make somebody look bad yeah. without even being involved in their match. Yeah, and, well, he, he knew he knew that I don't I don't I I, I could hate somebody, but I. If someone else is looking bad, that means I'm looking bad in the ring. So that that isn't going to happen. And that was th those are the two things. It had to be Ric Flair, and the money and the, and the schedule had to be right. And and Rick was able to facilitate that. So Eric, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, you know, when we're talking about Hulk Hogan and the deal you you struck with him, there's been lots of speculation and talk online about you know what his contract looked like, and we're kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but. I recently heard in 1997, and, and you can tell me this is ridiculous or this is close, 
that Hulk Hogan had a deal structured in such a way where he made north of $20 million. Does that sound... Not true at all. Not true at all. Okay. That's, you know, it's like urban legend. You know, it's like one person tells a story, then another person tells a story, and by the time the hundredth person tells that story, it's a completely different story. And and there's no truth to it or basis to it. Yeah, I, that, so, so, that sounded awfully strong to me, too, Eric. I, did, I didn't know, but... I mean, I, you no. know, I've never known, I've never asked Hulk, but... Um, you know, that came from one of the guys we had in the podcast that... Uh, well, we may have said too much, but uh-huh. you may have tipped the hand with that. But somebody, you know, did say, you know, candidly that it well, was... Well, he said it on the podcast. No, well, he said, he said it to me off the air. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Well, and I told you because we well, we're not talked about everything. Name, but yeah. anyway, it's... Um, and I thought, boy, that doesn't sound right. But, um, you know, anything's possible. You never know. I mean, it's right. like... Because they were just, they were like, you know, paying people ridiculous amounts of money. And and we should touch on that. You know what? Hulk's deal never really changed all that much. And again, this is, you know, 15, 20 years ago now. So, you know, clearly I I, I could be, you know, mistaking at some portions of this. But here, you know, I'm going to tell you right now what the basis of his deal was when he came over. He got um, $500,000 of pay per view. and he had to do like seven to ten TVs leading up to each pay-per-view, and he had four pay-per-views a year. That was his deal. Now there was some. Um, he had some really uh, um, favorable percentages on his merchandise, you know, that were unrealistic. But one, you got to remember, at the time that we brought Hulk in, WCW was making about forty bucks a week in merchandise. On wow. everybody, on everybody, cold yeah. up. You know, yeah. there was no merchandise really being sold. <laughs> That's amazing. That, that there hurts. Was, there was no license. Yeah. Well, they, they, and it wasn't the talent's fault. But WCW yeah. was the company. It was only about six or seven years old at that time, yeah. or maybe a little older than that. The company itself just never built the business side of their business in order to sell merchandise. Yeah, they just I, didn't do a good job. So. Yeah, Hulk got a you know lion's share, forty percent or whatever the percentage is. I don't remember the time, off of his merchandise, not WCW's, just his. But it's kind of like, well, great, he's going to get you know forty or fifty percent of his merchandise, and if we don't sign him, we're going to get a hundred percent of nothing. So it it was a you know was it a ridiculously lopsided deal? Yes, but was it, but was it anywhere near twenty million dollars? That's just so ridiculous, it's hard to comment on, really. So, Eric, the, the talk of the whole, you know, he got a piece of everybody else's merchandise. So if there was hypothetically a Monday Night Jericho t-shirt that was sold, Hulk saw no revenue from that. That wasn't like a dollar for him, a dollar for Jericho no. you know, scenario. No. Yeah, see, that, that's a myth, too. I, I, I never, I don't even think about stuff like that, but I, I, that sounded strong. I'll tell you what. Eric, you're not. You might not be aware of this. I'm. You know, I don't know if you talked to Kevin or not, but I, I, I see Kevin Nash a lot, like at events and signings and stuff, right? And I have introduced him to some people that I work for, and um, so when they when the WWE dropped Hulk, and I was going to ask you, I, this is a good question to ask. Eric, Great question. I'm curious too. When they when the WWE dismissed Hulk with all the stuff that went down. I didn't know that he and Kevin Nash owned 50% of the NWO merchandise. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, somehow Hulk and Kevin Nash bought 
50% of the NWO merchandise rights. And I, I don't know how they could have done that without you knowing about it before it went to WWE. And so when Hulk and this thing went down with the WWE and Hulk, they took the NWO merchandise off the shelf and yeah. off the website and everywhere. And Nash went crazy. He was ballistic over it. Um, because uh, he owned uh, thirty, he bought Scott Hall's piece. It was the three of them, right? Right. And he bought Scott Hall's piece, so he owned thirty-four percent. And and he's told me candidly uh, what the number is, and it's a lot of money, even now in twenty fifteen from NWO. Big time. So Kevin went to New York and flew up there, and they've agreed to put back on one of the shirts is on now. Yeah, the shirts are back up now, but they were down yeah. right after. Yeah, but how how do you, how could they have maneuvered that to, to own the NWO without you getting part of that, Eric? Well, because n- number one, you, you got to remember, I I was not part of WCW when WCW sold to um, WWE. Okay. So I, I wasn't, I hadn't really been involved, and not really, I hadn't been involved in any management decisions regarding WCW return of broadcasting um, as of September 10th, 1999. So anything that happened after September 10th, 1999, even though I may have been involved on camera and I may have yeah. been involved as a consultant creatively, from a business decision, decision point of view, I, I I was as remote as you could possibly be from it. And they closed down in April of... Yeah, end of March 2001. 2001. Yeah. Like yeah. 26th wow. or something. Wow. Yeah, I know. Anyway, I just I meant to ask you that. I thought about that because Kevin was... God, he was livid. I just couldn't figure out how they were able to negotiate that kind of a deal. So this is... Well, I'll tell you what. Next time I see Kevin Nash, he's buying sushi and beer. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah, he's doing well. I mean, that... Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. And he's still married. You know, when you, yeah. I don't know how you guys did this. I don't know me. I mean, I just, you know, who knows? The Wanderer. And by the way, <laughs> just so you know, guys, I can't say too much bad about Eric Bischoff because he has seen me in action. <laughs> <laughs> I can name two cities right now. That I'm, 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 I'm going to throw them out to you right now. That Eric will remember this. Jacksonville, Florida. And one night, he did come to see me at the Marriott in Baltimore. I remember nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he said, what are you doing? I said, come on up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember nothing. Uh, it's okay. I just know that you got the goods on me, so I got to be easy on you. <laughs> what are you doing? I said, I don't know. I'm not I'm not a champion. But come on up. <laughs> he said, what's well, boring down here? I said, it's not up here. Bring everybody with you. You know, it would have been a better time if you were on a Casper mattress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That wasn't even a mattress. I was just doing my thing. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder what's wrong, with me, Eric. I swear to God. So, I know I've been checked in, right? So, Eric, yeah, I went. I had a thirty-day vacation. Fishing <laughs> trip. It didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> they thought they could fake me out. I don't think so. Like Austin <laughs> said, they, I went fishing for thirty days with no beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to circle back around to merchandise for a minute, Eric. You know, there's been a lot of talk about you know, what the merchandise was for WWE and how that kind of really catapulted them. And I've always had this theory as a fan that back in the day when they were trying to grow their syndication, they had to pay for TV time. Back before they were getting paid from the national channels, you know, they had to go out and syndicate. And, and the way you did that is by outbidding WCW and the likes like that 
to go ahead and play your tape. And WCW never really had to do that because they were owned by a television company, Ted Turner and guys like that. So they had a different type of deal. So I don't think the merchandising was as big of a deal. But if you're selling a TV show, you get to air your own commercials. So why not sell your own product? It was a way to offset what you were paying for television time. And WCW never had that challenge. Is that fair or is that just way off base and me just making things up as a fan? No, I mean, there, it, it's partially true. You know, the, 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 that situation partially existed. And, you know, there's two, there were, back, and of course we're talking, you know, back in when I was involved, you know, 94 through 99, WCW and, and WWE at the time, you know, they, they could make money off of television, you know, basically two ways. Syndication, which was barter. You really didn't, you know, what we did oftentimes was we'd go into a local television market, uh, Huntsville, for example, find a local television station there that was interested in carrying wrestling. And if the local, if our syndicated show had, you know, 12 minutes of commercial time in it, then the local the station got to keep six minutes of that and, and sell it to their local advertisers. And WCW or WWE, is, in their case, would put together a network of these these markets around the country, aggregate that inventory, and then they would sell it, you know, to national advertisers. And that was how syndication worked, and how the revenue from syndication worked. So in that sense, WCW and WWE were really exactly in the same spot in terms of receiving income for that particular television show. Now, when it came to cable, that was a different deal because Turner did own the cable outlet, WTBS, that we were on, and that was a much different deal for, for, for us, for WCW, than it was for WWE. had to go out and either buy it on or negotiate a barter or whatever, whatever they did. I'm not familiar with how they did it back then. But it, but it was different because we, you know, Turner owned the cable, the outlet that they were on. But but those two things didn't have anything to do with merchandising. Merchandising is having you know hats, jackets, t-shirts, and, and and tchotchkes that you sell either you know primarily it's to people who come to the live events, but secondarily it's at retail you know on the licensing side of things. It's you know nowadays it's on the internet, but that didn't exist back then. So it was really the hats, jackets, and t-shirts component of the business that WCW sucked at. And they sucked at it for a lot of reasons, but primarily because WCW never, they were a young company, and all of their focus was on just trying to survive in television and trying to get a leg up in television and trying to build their live event business because it didn't have the consistent live event success that WWE had. So when WWE would go on tour, even back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and Rick, when you were there, you would have markets where you're putting 10,000, 15,000 people in an arena. You go to a small market where there's no TV. There's still 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. When each one of them are spending you know, $15 a head on hats, jackets, and T-shirts, that's a pretty good day times 300 days a year or more. Yeah. It's a really good day. WCW didn't have that. So that's just not where their emphasis was because they were such a young, underdeveloped company at that time. 
All right, guys, we're going to take a break and we're going to tell you all about Rectech, an amazing company that offers wood pellet grills fueled by all natural hardwood pellets, along with other outdoor lifestyle products such as coolers, apparel, grill accessories, and more. With grills ranging from $399 to $3,000, Rectech has grills for every lifestyle and every budget with a key focus on flavor, convenience, and versatility. Their factory direct pricing eliminates the middleman and all grills ship free. Plus, all Rectech pellet grills are made with high quality stainless steel and are built to last a lifetime. Rectech's flagship model, the RT700, comes with a 40 pound pellet hopper, 702 square inches of cooking space, the PID Wi-Fi controller, and a six year bumper to bumper warranty. You can bake, smoke, sear, grill, and even dehydrate on the grill, all with the push of a button. And that's why those in the know choose Rectech. So, it's time to toss that tasteless gas grill, messy charcoal grill, or even that overhyped brand name grill aside and join an elite wood pellet grilling family. By focusing on flavor, convenience, and versatility, Rectech sets the new standard in grilling. Visit Rectech.com, that's R-E-C-T-E-Q. Use the code NATUREBOY to get 5% off site-wide. That's 5% off their top-notch wood pellet grills, one-of-a-kind Rectech icer coolers, chef-tested rubs and sauces, accessories, merchandise, everything, 5% off. That's Rectech.com and use the code NATUREBOY. Yeah, it's funny because I, I've, I've told this story. Uh, we had Austin on the podcast, and uh, when I first went back to WWE in 2001, November, mm-hmm. um, I think one of my first shows was Anaheim, and uh, was the pond. It was sold out, and the guy said to me, man, we just had a huge night. I didn't know it was, but in merchandise. And he said, uh, well, he was talking about making a T-shirt. And he said, yeah, we just had a big night tonight. I said, what, what, what's a big night? He said, well, we sold 15,000 Rock T-shirts, and we sold 14,000 Austin T-shirts, or vice versa. And I said, what? He said, yeah, we sold 15,000 Rock T-shirts and 14,000 Austin T-shirts. Unbelievable. Or A or B. In other words, and they were doing that every night. I mean, that the merchandise that Rock and Steve Austin <laughs> were knocking down back at that time frame. Can you imagine that, Eric? I mean, yeah, and, I'll, and then, I'll never forget that statement. The guy said, yeah, and then... You know, whatever they do, I mean, there's like DX and all that stuff came right. along. And they, the guy, I think the biggest difference, and Eric, you correct me if I'm wrong, is that they go out and they hire people that may not know anything about wrestling, but they know how to market. And WCW was just trying to figure out, I mean, Eric couldn't re reconfigure the whole company. I mean, you know what I'm saying, Eric? Would you agree? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. It was just a, an un, you know, it was an immature. When I say immature, that doesn't, I don't mean that, you know, derisively or, or as, a, as a negative statement. But they were immature. They were very, very young. They didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the right people in the right place. They didn't have the focus on the right things. And quite frankly, we weren't drawing enough people to our house shows. At least when I got involved in the business side of yeah. things. We were drawing 150 people here, 300 people there. We'd have, you know, we'd have a good house every once in a while by, by WCW standards. But when you're drawing, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred people at a live event, and you're not going to sell a whole lot of merchandise. 
Yeah. Well, that's that why, was, that, that's what I was trying to explain when, I, when Oli said, what are you worth to me? I mean, it's not like they were selling out every night, you right. know what I mean? And uh, that's, you know, just, it sent me over the top, and uh, which is a sad moment for me because I had so much respect for Oli for all those years. But once again, you know, if you've been on that national TV with a company that's, you know, really successful and it's done very well and you come back and you're faced with that same stuff again, it's, it's, it's hard to swallow sometimes. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, Eric is our most fascinating guest because Eric knows really kind of the behind the scenes of a lot of the stuff that, you know, it's really become folklore in wrestling. And one of the things that people talk about a lot, I guess there's three uh, a three-pronged question here for you, Eric, is when you talk about Hall and Nash, there's the talk that, and it's become really popular in the last few years, they got a raise or a bump, as they like to say, for not having the uh, merchandise aspect built into their contract. They didn't get the big, thick statement that Rick even still gets to this day from WWE. Uh, number two, that they got an additional raise because they thought, just because they were on deal sheets and Jim Ross did the angle on Raw in 96, that they were coming back as uh, Razor and Diesel. And, and then number three, you know, there was the talk about, you know, Hall and Nash at the time, for whatever reason, having a favored nations clause and anybody else who was hired, they got bumped up. What, if any of that is complete BS and what's legit? Guy, you know, uh, you just lost me. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> Go ahead, Rick. <laughs> Again, let me let me preface this by saying, you know, I'm 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 pretty good friends with both Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Yes, sir. You know, at, at this point in time in my life, and and I've been friends with them. You know, I, you know, Kevin and I have a, have always had a very unique relationship. Um, Scott, you know, I've not been as close to Scott. You know, when he was even when I was working with him. We've since become close. I, I admire him for trying to overcome his issues. I, I understand, I think, a fair amount of what he's been through and what kind of led him into the, the direction that his life took him. So I, seeing that he's working really hard at, at me, you know, establishing a relationship with his, his son and his, his children, it, 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 I don't know, it, I respect it. So I, I see both of them like Rick does. I see him at you know autograph signings or whatever. So I, I don't want to say anything to be put myself on the outside of that relationship. But well, well, I'm going to be honest. Kevin and Conrad are really close friends. You, so. you, you asked the question, and yeah. I hope that these guys will understand that I'm just I'm being as honest as I can be from my perspective. Um, a, I don't remember the details of their individual contracts. I really don't. So. Somebody could pull one out and say, "See, Bischoff was lying through his teeth." I don't. I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to lie. I'm not trying to mislead. I'm telling you what I remember. Okay. From what I remember, they they got deals that probably made them about the same amount of money that they were making with WWE when they left. Now this goes back to the merchandise conversation we were just talking about. You know. People say, and I get this all the time to this day, oh, you're the guy that, you know, if it wasn't for you, guaranteed contracts would have never happened. And by the way, sometimes they put me over for that. You know, I didn't invent guaranteed contracts. When Rick came back to WCW when I was a third string announcer, he got a guaranteed contract. I didn't, I didn't write that contract. Well, I had a guaranteed contract before I left. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the guaranteed contracts came... As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't realize that Crockett had to start guaranteeing money 
with, with Luger, and when he did that, then the Road Warriors jumped in, and I jumped in real fast. Yeah, and and in, and then when when I was in a management position, and, and we'll talk more just about you know Scott Hall and, and Kevin Nash, these guys wanted to make the move. Part of it was financial. Part of it was they didn't like the pay system in WWE. Now I I don't know how it works. I'm certainly not going to say anything adverse to WWE, but it was kind of sort of discretionary at that time. The formula was a mystical kind of thing. You got paid kind of, sort of, where you were on the card, you know, what everybody thought your contribution was. I mean, there was a formula there, but there was a lot of discretion involved in that formula as well. And the majority, and Rick knows this better than I do, the majority of the money that you would make in, in WWE back then, and probably to a large degree now, was based on where you were at in the house shows, how many house shows you went to, how much merchandise you sold, you know, what your involvement was in a pay-per-view, where you were on the card. You know, there's a lot of formula that went along with that. In WCW, when someone wanted to come in, whether it was Ric Flair when he came back or Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, I couldn't say, okay, guys, well, look at this guy over here. Look at, look at, look at Van Vader over here. Last year, he made $300,000 a year just on T-shirt sales. Huh. I, if I said to someone, I'm going to give you 70, you know, Vince McMahon gives you whatever the percentage is, 5%, I'm going to give you 75% of all of your merchandise sales. Now, if that person had a half a brain or an, or an attorney or, or, or a husband or wife, they would go, well, give me an example of someone who's selling a lot of merchandise. And then I would sit there and go, uh, can't give you one, because we didn't have any. So the only way I could be competitive and pay people close to what they were making in WWE, and in some cases more, was to guarantee the contract. I couldn't share anything with them because there was nothing to share. We weren't making any money at that point. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I did guarantee, you know, Scott and Kevin. And I, I don't remember what the number is, but I think it was like seven I'm pretty sure it was um, when they first came in. And, yes, they were able to renegotiate when their contracts were up. But there was no, nothing that I recall that happened while they were in the middle of a contract that forced me or encouraged me to renegotiate and give them raises. When their contracts were up, yes, if things were going well, numbers were up, they were a big part of it. So, yeah, they, they probably got a raise. But it wasn't because anybody had a gun to my head or anything that Jim Ross did or any kind of backstage you know, manipulative you know, people like to talk about that because it makes themselves look smarter, it makes themselves look, you know, knowledgeable about certain things. But, you know, the reality is, yes, they got raises when their contracts came due. So in October of 96, uh, Ross tried to turn heel, so to speak, as his on-air character. And he said he's going to bring back Razor Ramon and Diesel. Who are currently with WCW. Right. Well, uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were, yeah. but WWE owned the, the intellectual yeah, exactly. property that's, for the names. That's why they were inducted by So they her. brought a guy in named Rick Bogner and dressed him up like Scott Hall as Razor Ramon. And then they brought in Glenn Jacobs and dressed him up like Diesel. And we know, of oh. course, a little later, yeah. you know, Glenn Jacobs became Kane, and yeah. now he's a Hall of Famer. But at the time, that wasn't necessarily the case. They had tried him as Isaac Yankum, DDS, yeah. the evil dentist, and the whole deal. Yeah. So, But the talk is, for years and years, that they're watching the monitor backstage on Nitro, and out come the guys, and they realize 
that Eric had oversigned them. And supposedly the talk was he had paid them an extra $200,000. He had them on deal sheets at the time. This is the myth. This is the legend. This is the talk online. But he didn't have actual, you know, ink on a contract. And so because of that, Eric was nervous and signed up for an extra 200. He just shot all that down. But before now, that's been like urban legend that everybody completely bought into. That he was. I, I never heard that. God. I've heard. I've heard. You know, versions of that. And you know, again, <laughs> look. Did, did did they each get a raise when their contracts were up? That I I'm, I'm I would rate that as a highly probable. But but I I also would. I just I unequivocally say it had nothing to do with fear. It had nothing to do with me buying into the bullshit. That sorry about that. No, great. That's okay. Me, Let it go. You know, buying into the BS that you know Jim Ross, you know, was going to bring them back, and I was going to lose them, and I was afraid, so I gave them something that I didn't have to give them. That's a lot of the typical kind of nonsense that has evolved, you know, as you said, in, in, in the urban legend of the wrestling wrestling business for over the last ten or fifteen years. Yeah. So, what about favored nations? Is that a real thing? You know, I, I thought about that. You know, in between our calls here. The only person that I can recall that have a there are two people that I can recall um, that had favored nations in their agreements was obviously Hulk and Bill Goldberg, and that's because they shared an attorney. And and Bill, you know, when Bill started, you know, he was making seventy five grand a year at the power plant. Yeah, he wasn't making big money. You know, it might have been more than I don't remember, wasn't it? But it was not big money. Okay. Um. He didn't, you know, really get into the big money until after he had really blown up as a big star. And then Hulk um, introduced him to Henry Holmes, and then Henry, Henry Holmes introduced me to hell <laughs> because yeah. he was negotiating with both of them, and Henry knew. Henry was very seasoned at what he could push and, and acquire. And, and Goldberg was hot as hell. So I'm pretty sure Bill got a favored nations agreement. I doubt that anybody else got one. But, hey, if someone can you know, provide an agreement that says otherwise, I'll be happy to uh, admit that I was wrong. But I don't think so. Eric, while we're on the topic of contracts, there's a lot of talk that towards the end of WCW, and you may not be super familiar with this, but you may understand the concept of it. Why was there? Or why were there guys on Time Warner contracts instead of WCW contracts? You know, there's the talk online about why that was, but do you know that that happened? And if so, what was the thought process behind it? I have no insight into that at all. And to be honest, this is the first time that I've heard that. I never heard that either. Well, the concept was when WCW went out of business. You know, they didn't get everybody's contract. WWE, I mean, they. And and so it was a deal where guys got paid to sit at home. So you've heard the story yeah, for I, I years. Got, I'm one of them. So, but the talk was that they they that would mean if you got paid to sit at home, that WWE didn't really buy your contract. You had a Time Warner contract, yeah. and Time Warner didn't go out of business. Yeah, WCW did. Yeah. So if you had a WCW Entertainment contract, then that contract was sold to WWE. Yeah. But if you didn't, well, then uh, you were on a Time uh, Warner then, deal. That that was, would be what Goldberg had too, because he got paid. Goldberg, Nash, Rick Steiner, a lot of guys. Or yeah, whoever. I mean, I don't, even, I, yeah. don't, I don't know who it is, but I did have one of those. I didn't know it was a time warning. You know what? This is the first time I've ever heard that there were two forms of a time warner slash WCW contract. I, I, I certainly hadn't. It, that didn't occur while under my watch. 
Um, now, maybe things changed later, after 1999 when I left, but this is the first time I've ever heard that. Well, you it's know? probably because when WCW sold, they weren't in existence anymore. They just had to... Yeah, but, but WCW was a subsidiary of Turner Broadcasting, uh-huh. so, it, you know, it's not like WCW went bankrupt, which is another headline, you know? Yeah. It, it isn't really true. WCW was a wholly owned subsidiary of Time Warner uh-huh. and, and Turner Broadcasting. Yeah. So the contracts would have been... Um, they would have been connected to Time Warner Turner Broadcasting. So just because WCW, Turner decided to shut WCW down didn't mean that the, their obligations under their contracts would have just gone away. They would have still had to continue paying those people. Yeah, well, they did. So, I mean, I, I, I got paid. I mean, I ended up, uh, when I went back to work for WWE, uh, you know. You took a buyout. I took a buyout, yeah. Um, but it was, um, you know, I... I, I, the WWE was generous enough to me at that point in time where it was worth it, and I, I was tired of sitting home. I was glad to go back and be on camera and all that. So, And I'm I, I'm guessing, again, I don't know. I wasn't involved in any of it. Nobody even had a conversation with me about it at the time. But I'm guessing that the WWE probably said at the time, okay, here's these guys that are under a you know, Time Warner WCW contract. We can either bring them in or... Not, and I'm pretty sure. I would imagine. I'm not pretty sure. I would imagine that WWE just decided. You know, it's not worth paying. You know, a Bill Goldberg, whatever Bill Goldberg was making, a couple million bucks a year, whatever it was. Yeah. It's not worth bringing in certain people. They're not going to inherit that contract if they don't have to. Yeah. Um. And and some of those contracts probably look like you know that's a reasonable deal. Let's inherit that one. Yeah. So my guess is it was more discretionary on the part of WWE than some kind of contractual advantage that certain talents had because they had, you know, a Time Warner contract or a WCW Entertainment contract. Yeah. This episode of To Be The Man is brought to you by CarShield, who makes it easy and affordable to protect my car. I mean, not just my car. I'm a hum- humble, humble host of Gentleman Villain Podcast with William Regal. But I think Ric Flair's car, I, I'm, I don't know for a fact, but I do know Conrad Thompson's car for sure from expensive repairs. And that's just for starters. Truth be told, I once broke one of Conrad's cars just by sitting in the passenger seat. And it's a good thing that he has CarShield because CarShield is the number one auto protection company in the U.S. and offers protection plans for around 100 bucks a month. The plans cover more parts than ever before, whether your car has 5,000 miles, 150,000 miles, or whether you have uh, friends who, who break your car. Let me tell you how simple it is to get your car fixed. When you need a repair, you choose the mechanic and CarShield's administrators handle the rest. That's it. You don't have to deal with the paperwork or headaches you're taking care of. Same goes if your car breaks down and you're stuck on the side of the road. Plans through CarShield also include coast-to-coast roadside assistance. And let me tell you, that's something I'm going to be taking advantage of uh, because that happens to me all the time. CarShield administrators are there for you with rental car options and trip reimbursement at no extra cost, too. Get coverage today, and you'll lock in your price now, and it will never, never, never go up. That means as long as you own your car, no matter how old it is, you're protected from the rising cost of parts and repairs and friends like me for your vehicle. CarShield helps protect my wallet and, and Conrad's wallet, again, from, from me and other friends. 
from expensive car repairs, and they'll do the same for you. Go to carshield.com slash podcast to start your plan and lock in your pricing forever. That's carshield.com slash podcast. A deductible may apply. So, Eric, I'm trying to remember. Um, so, was Ted not actively involved in the company at the time that went down? No. Ted, Ted had stepped back already. Is that correct? Well, yeah. And, and step back is putting it mildly. Yeah. I think, and, I, and I've, I've seen interviews that Ted has done, you know, since that time. Certainly, I don't talk to him anymore. But, you know, the whole AOL Time Warner merger was a giant cluster. You know, there's been books written about it. What a disaster yeah. of a merger. In fact, the, the best book that you could possibly read on this subject is a book called When Fools Rush In by an author by the name of Nina Monk. And it really describes the cluster, the, just the politics, the mess, and the financial disaster that AOL, Time Warner, and Turner became. And one of the biggest casualties was Ted Turner himself. Oh, of course, I heard. It was that, that was from AOL, though, right? It was AOL, it was AOL Time Warner. Ted, Ted agreed to the merger yep. and agreed to terms within that merger that effectively took him out of direct control yes. that he'd enjoyed at Turner Broadcasting. But he did so believing, quite honestly, I think, that he, had, that he could trust Joe Levin and he could trust the people involved. And immediately after you know, the merger was finalized, um, he got... He basically, they showed him to his office and said, here, just sit here and you know, do whatever you want to do, but you're no longer involved in the decision-making process. Yeah, what a That's, ridiculous decision. And so when you asked me, Rick, was Ted involved, you know, he had a figurehead title at that time, yeah. but he no longer had any operational stroke whatsoever. Yeah. And that, that actually started about 1998, when the whole AOL Time Warner, well, it was actually Time Warner first, but when the Time Warner... Merger started, you know, percolating, I think around early 98, is when, you know, Ted started really losing gradually, didn't happen overnight, but gradually losing operational control. Yeah, well, I can remember you and I talking one day, I think we were at Jocks and Jill's or whatever that place was yeah, called. Yeah, the and, base of the CNN Center. Yeah, and uh, this was right at the end, Eric and Eric and I were talking about the fact that the Braves went up for sale. And they wanted and uh, they wanted four hundred million for him, and Ted didn't have the money to pay him. He had the money, but he wasn't going to. I mean, and the Braves were his passion. Would you agree, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he and I mean, he went to the games all the time, but they went up for sale for four hundred million dollars. He didn't buy them, and so they. It wasn't he didn't have the money, but you know, the right. Wasn't a good investment before. at the time. Yeah, I mean, because he got burnt so bad. I thought it was on AOL stock, but it was a, a combination of both. Yeah, well, I mean, when Turner of- first, you know, the, the first deal they did was with Time Warner, and mm-hmm. then shortly after that, on the heels of that, then, you know, AOL came in. I mean, <laughs> AOL barely exists anymore as it did back then. Yeah. Um, you yeah. can't even find them on, on NASDAQ, I don't believe. Yeah. Um, but it, at that time, that was at the time of the Internet bubble, Steve Case and AOL, everybody thought the entire you know, world was going to revolve around them. And yeah. The bottom fell completely out of it. Just well, I'll, I'll tell you how bad it was. Not to go too far into the weeds here on business things, 
But when I was forced, when I left WCW in September of 1999, I had two and a half years left on my contract, and they sent me home. And I wasn't making the kind of money that Rick made or the kind of money that talent made, but I was, I was doing all right. I was living there somewhere between five and seven hundred grand a year with bonuses and crap like that. But I had acquired over the years a lot of stock options, and at the time. I didn't really know what stock options were. I didn't follow it closely. I'd get these things every quarter, and I'd stick in my file on my desk, and oh, well, I got stock options. Never really paying attention to any of it. Well, when they finally decided to bring me back for a brief period of time after the Russo disaster, while I was still under contract, but they had, they had triggered a, a clause in my contract that was it's, it's called pay or play. And once you trigger a pay-or-play provision in the contract, you can't go back and change your mind. You can't say, okay, just go home, we're going to pay out the rest of your contract, and then six months later, go, nah, we changed our mind, we're going to bring you back. It doesn't work that way. So when they triggered the pay-or-play provision in my contract in September of 1999, and then in 2000 decided, whoops, we screwed up, we better bring him back, it gave me leverage to renegotiate my deal. And I said, okay, look, you guys are a mess. I don't want to be an employee. I don't want to be the president of the company. I don't want to be in charge of anything. I'll be a consultant. I'll get involved. I'll be on camera. But I'm not going to be an employee. I'm going to go do other things. And they agreed to that. They, in fact, they paid me more money. They, what they did is they bought out my old contract at $0.10 on a dollar. Not 90 not 95 $0.10 on a dollar. And then they wrote me a new contract. They paid it out, terminated it and then simultaneously wrote me a new contract as an independent contractor. But what happened was, when they paid out my previous contract and, there, and therefore terminated it in order to enter into a new one, I was no longer an employee. Well, I got a call about a week later from somebody in Turner who says, okay, well, you have 30 days to exercise your options. I didn't even know what that meant. So I go in my file, I get all my stock options out, and I look at it, and I go, holy crap, I got about a million and a half dollars sitting here. <laughs> I didn't even know it was in my desk. Oh, my God. So my, my average strike price was around 13 bucks. AOL Time Warner stock, or Time Warner stock, on the head, at the head of the merger, was trading for about 98 bucks a share. Wow. And I'm just doing the math in my head going, holy crap. I'm really, really doing well here. But I didn't want to sell the stock because every morning it was going up and up and up and up and up. And I'm thinking, man, this is great. Long story short, they, I, I didn't have any options. I called an attorney. I hired an attorney. I tried to force them to let me keep my options. None of that worked. I had to sell my, my stock. I sold it at about 102 or 103 bucks a share, somewhere in there. Maybe under 100 I don't remember, but it was close. And made a boatload of money. And then about six months later, AOL Time Warner stock was trading at about 11. Oh, that, that's, that's where Ted lost all his money. Yep. And so did a lot of people. I already lost like $4 billion. Yeah. And, I mean, and you know, people like I, Brad Siegel and, you know, people that were at my level and above me, you know, they're the ones that really suffered the most. They got crushed. Yeah. Hey, I've got to tell you something, uh, Eric, and interesting in this conversation, and if it hadn't happened, and I can find the name. <clears throat> so I'm <clears throat> on a plane with, um, and I, I want to get a comment on this because it doesn't matter to me, and I'm sure you don't care either. 
I'm on a plane flying somewhere and a, with a woman who is taking her daughter. I'm trying to think where I was going. Um, um, she, her daughter was going to enroll in uh, Juilliard. Okay, yeah, yeah. In yeah. New York City. I must yeah. be going to New York, right? So, and her husband worked for Turner. And she goes, um, I know who you are. And my husband was there while you were there. And I cannot think of his name. And I said, so... <laughs> You'll love this. She said, um, "What did you think of uh, and I of Harvey Schiller?" And I said, "I don't know. I didn't know him very well." And she said, "He may go down in history as the biggest loser in the history of Turner Broadcasting." Wow. Have you ever heard that, Eric? No, I never did. You know, Harvey. Harvey. I. I always. I didn't always get along with Harvey. No, but you know, I. I, I like. I mean, with you know, a, a nice guy, but. I guess he. They just thought that he was a disaster. This guy has been there forever. He knew Brad Siegel. I mean, it, the woman knew all the names, and I can't think of. I mean, she knew the. Remember that you had me do a couple speaking engagements for people that were big in the company, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, she knew everybody, uh, like Bill and all those guys. But and she said, "What'd you think of Harvey Schiller?" I said, "I, I didn't know him very well. I mean, he, you know, he came to Sturgis and all that." And, she said he'll go down in history as the biggest loser in the history of Turner Broadcasting. And Eric, I'm yeah. not asking you to comment on that. I'm just saying that I, there was a name out of the past I'd forgotten all about Harvey Schiller. You know, so yeah, Har Harvey. You know, Harvey took over for Bill Shaw, and I wasn't happy about that because I really love Bill Shaw. Yeah, and we're still we're still friends to this day. Um, and I was so comfortable with Bill, and there was a trust level yeah, he was there. A nice we, guy. Had good, we had we had great momentum. You know, we we had great momentum together. And then Harvey came in and, you know, took over WCW because, you know, it, it, it fell under Turner Sports, and Harvey was the president of Turner Sports. And Harvey was, you know, former military. I think he was a, a major in the Air Force. So he was a very, you know, crude cut, very you know, buttoned down, you know, kind of what you would imagine an, an, an Air Force major or colonel to be like. And he, he kind of ran his business like that. So it was a little bit of a conflict with me because I was a more of a nonconformist from a corporate point of view. But we, we ended up really developing good trust together. Harvey was only there for a short period of time, but I will say this. Harvey was a political animal. Harvey saw what was going on at a much higher level at Turner than I did, and certainly at a much higher level during the AOL Time Warner merger than I, that I was capable of understanding or exposed to. And Harvey saw, I think Harvey really saw himself as the president of Turner Broadcasting to take mm -hmm. over Terry McGurk's position. Yeah. Well, that's right. That, that was the name I was looking for, Terry McGurk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he wanted, no, this, he this, wanted, he this wanted, woman Terry, knew everybody. I, I uh, think he wanted Terry McGurk's job, and it didn't work out for him. But I will say this Harvey Schiller left with a boatload of money. Of course. And he went to work for George Steinbrenner. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he is, I don't want to say he's a member, uh, president or one of the top executives at the U.S. Olympic Committee or one of the largest sanctioning bodies in U.S. sports to this day. I just ran into him about six months ago. Yeah. I have had such a great time on this podcast. And Conrad, who... I say all the time, knows more about wrestling than Dave Meltzer <laughs> and makes too much money to be this big a fan, but he is, thinks it's the greatest podcast we've ever done. It is. So what I want to do 
is I'm going to, we aired an hour and 30 minutes here. It'll air uh, tomorrow. And I want to come back to you, Eric, and I want you to tell the world why you fired me for taking Reed to the National Wrestling Tournament. <laughs> we'll talk about WWE. We'll talk about divided locker rooms. And we, and we can go on forever. It's such a great time. And we'll also discuss why our relationship is so good in life right now. Is that okay with you, Eric? Sounds like it sounds perfect. Okay, guys. Well, Eric, thank you so much. You All right, awesome, guys. Look forward, look forward to talking to you both tomorrow. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very All much, right. Eric. Okay, man. So, Rick, I know we're going to come back and we're going to do yeah. part two next week, and we've never, ever done that before, a two-parter. But this is our biggest guest ever, in my opinion, just because okay. you guys have such an interesting past. Would you agree? I think it's awesome. I mean, we're sitting here, and you guys are discussing stuff I wasn't aware of. You know, the financial side, the yeah. business side. I mean, Eric yeah. was really, and he gets crapped on a lot on the Internet, but the reality is he helped catapult wrestling to its highest peak oh, and its highest yeah. level. Yeah. And But but the, the, the interaction between you two, whenever I told my friends, you know, my real life, hey, we're going to have Bischoff on the podcast this week, they assumed you guys hated each other, and that's no, not no, really no, the we, case. No, we, I'm, obviously we've had huge differences, and obviously there was a lot of animosity the main thing being the thing with my son. Sure. And But there was other components in that. And then the thing that we'll discuss uh, next week is the dressing room conversation where he told everybody. He never drew a dime. didn't draw a dime and that I was going to break me and all that. So, And I'm sure he'll be honest about it. And it was an emotional deal, you know, and it, I, I sat home for a year. But there's been a lot of personal growth on both sides of the fence, oh, exactly. both you and he, and everything's yeah. a lot better now. Oh, but uh, yeah. People want to hear that story, and and we kind of didn't we didn't mean to, but we we kind of set it up for a two parter here where we're going to talk yeah. about that next week. We just covered so much other good stuff, all the NWO stuff. I never knew any of that. I yeah. mean, that's really cool stuff, and, yeah. and I think people are going to be. Well, into that. I'm the, the merchandise thing, I didn't know either. I mean, he didn't know about the. Those guys buying the merch that are Kevin and that. So next week, I want to ask him how in the hell Stevie Ray made more than you one year. That's a crazy deal. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, once next again, week. I'm the only one left without any money, man. Next Jesus, week, yeah. Woo Nation, come on. Woo! Tune in. Wrestling fans, it's time to win with Zinn. Get to WrestlingPrizes.com to register for your chance to win one of four once-in-a-lifetime digital Q&A sessions with wrestling legends Ric Flair, Eric Bischoff, Jim Ross, or Mick Foley. Winners also get an autographed replica championship belt and a prize pack from Zinn, America's number one nicotine pouch. Register once per day, now through July 15th. WrestlingPrizes.com. No purchase necessary to enter or win. Open to U.S residents 21 and over void where prohibited for official rules visit wrestlingprices.com warning this product contains nicotine nicotine is an addictive chemical are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt SaveWithConrad.com can help and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this nmls number 65084 equal housing lender oh and did i mention no house payments for two months get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com.
cheat, you're a scam, you are a no good son of a bitch. All right, Rick, this week in history, this is one of the biggest moments in wrestling history, certainly in WCW and Ric Flair and Four Horsemen history. It's September 14th, 1998, and after a long hiatus away from WCW, Ric Flair returns to Monday Night Nitro uh, with Arn kind of being the master of ceremonies, putting together the Four Horsemen again. It's your return to Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, the fans just got to hear the impassioned promo you cut on Eric Bischoff kind of catch everybody up about what was going on behind the scenes that led to that moment. Well, it's very simple. I'd sat out almost a year and, um, WCW had sent me a check each week, even though I didn't have a contract in place. Um, but if I cashed the check, it would, uh, it would mean that I was accepting their conditions. So right. I ate the checks. I kept them there. Um, but I had come out of pocket about $230,000. You know, the kids were young and they were in private school then. And, uh, um, actually my friend, John, um, I'm drawing a blank. John Taylor, the attorney said to Rick, you know, you can just sit this out. You'll be rich because Turner always pays. Cause I sued them too. And, uh, uh, or you can go back and, uh, you know, eat a little crow, but you'll be back at work. Or you can sit home, you know, the rest of your career. So ultimately, I made the right decision to go back. Um, I was miserable within a month later because I was lied to and deceived again. But um, I got the money and uh, not the millions I would have gotten from the lawsuit because, as we've discussed, you can't publicly say you're going to break somebody when you're the president of a company like for Turner Broadcasting, which he did break my family, break me, da da da. da. Everybody knows that story. So, um, but that moment was phenomenal. It was very heartfelt, and I didn't miss a beat. Um, the reaction from the fans, Greenville's always been a great market for me. Um, so respectful for the years there. Um, and to be in the, iron, in the ring with Iron Mongo, and that was very cool. And, uh, you know, we were a featured commodity again just, you know, for that night. But, you know, the problem is is that everybody else looking around, they hate. People hated those moments that were so real and so much bigger than what was going on because we weren't part of the product. If that makes sense? Well, uh, who, who do you mean when you say people hate? Well, I don't want to put their names out there, but everybody was jealous. Who wouldn't be? Who's going to get that kind of moment? Who's going to go out there and get that kind of reaction from a crowd? I mean, not very few people I've ever seen had it. Because I just had that match. Later on, I had a match with Hunter there. Remember that um, where they carried me around the ring and all yeah. that? And Austin yeah. came out. I mean, Greenville's a good market for me. So... I've been very fortunate to happen at the right time. It just, I made the decision to go back and, and, and John was right. I would have sat home. My other attorney in Charlotte wanted to kill me for going back. Cause he said, you're going to be rich. You'll never have to look around again. People can't do that, but 
you know, I decided to go back and ultimately it worked out for me. And then, then I got to have another run, uh, with the WWE, which was great. So, you know, the guys that, the guys that tried to screw me around, um, I mean, it's like, where are they now? Right. So talking about that promo that night, um, did you guys have any sort of parameters or limitations or discussions beforehand about what no. you were going to say? Nope. But you knew Bischoff was going to come down. Yep. And uh, he just trusted that you were going to um, do something good for business. And obviously you did. We're still talking about it all these years later. Mm-hmm. So when you walk back through the curtain, is there any discussion with anybody about what was said or business as usual? No, I mean, the guys loved it. I, um, I'll tell you a great story, which I'll never forget, is Rebecca, Sean's uh, wife, who was a Nitro girl at that time, uh, ran up to me. I didn't know her and said, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That was awesome. Yeah. she. I mean, she I didn't even know her, but such a nice person, but to be someone that was, you know, probably like on the outside looking in, not being that familiar with the business to come and say that to me was pretty cool. I've never forgotten it. She said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I said, thank you. <laughs> we'll see what I'm doing tomorrow. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Ric Flair, 16 times your World Heavyweight Champion and host of Woo Woo Nation, along with my co-host, very close friend, and the second wealthiest man in the state of Alabama. Oh, my gosh. His financial success only is taken over and exceeded by Dr. James Andrews, the most famous orthopedic surgeon in the world. Conrad, welcome back. And Thanks today, for having me, man. We have, we've never done this before, part two of the Eric Bischoff, Ric Flair, WCW story. Hi, Eric. Hey, Rick, and, and I want to apologize to all your listeners because the obvious, you know, the reason that we have a part two is because I talked so freaking much and I'm so long-winded that we didn't have enough time yesterday <laughs> to finish it up. So it's a pleasure to be here again. No, you know, the problem is we just got going. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that you talk too much. I yeah. think it's that you guys have such a great history and such a great story. And really, as you've seen some of the reactions on Twitter, people can't believe that you guys are even on a speaking term, much less, you know, doing podcasts with one another. So this is awesome, and we really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you again today. Well, no, I mean, should be around, those fans should be around when we're, we're having a couple of beers. They'd really be entertained. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, we've, oh, hey, you know, I, there are times I would say we agree to disagree, there are times we just didn't agree. But it was never like we weren't having fun. <laughs> I mean, we never, we, I, I don't think we ever, even at the he, most heated moments, and I'm going to say something that which you might agree with, Eric, or not, if you don't want to comment. I think the two guys put a lot of issues between kind of, Eric, and I wrote about it in my book, where Barry, don't tell anybody I told you, Bloom, and Michael, don't tell Barry I told you anything, Braverin. <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah, I, agree. I mean, and, that, and you know what? I want to tell you something. Those guys, you know, they jumped. They were huge on Roddy Piper, right? Huge. Never showed up in Portland for the funeral. So where everybody else in the world that was close to Roddy did, Michael and, and Barry did not. Only because they couldn't get something out of him, you know what I mean? And, they, you know, all that stuff that went down with you and I and, um, and it finally got resolved with our good friend John... Um, 
John Taylor. John Taylor, who, by the way, is very sick, Eric. Uh, he's got a real advanced all-stager, uh, all-timers. So he's having a hard time. But John says volumes about where he is because he was representing Hunter yeah. at that time. I mean, it just he didn't care, you know, and just, you know, they're all about the money. Nice guys, you know, nice to be talked to and all that, but there was something there that wasn't right. So anyway. Yeah, go- I've, I've got to, I've got, you know, we'll go back to it, you know, because you know, fans probably want to hear about the issue that, you know, the one that everybody's most know, you know, aware of between you and I. And it's related to this, but, you know, there, there's, I, I've got a couple Barry Bloom stories that are really fascinating when it comes to the world of entertainment and how quickly things can go wrong. But, you know, we can, we can hit on that later on. Yeah, that's you know that'll be that'll be chapter three. We just we can't we got <laughs> we got too much to talk about here, man. Well, since we're already talking about money, you know, we kind of teased at the end of uh, the previous episode we were going to talk about how kind of the money got out of control in WCW, and there's all kinds of talk online about who got what and the crazy clauses. I even heard recently that Ray Taylor or Ray Trailer rather had a pay per view bonus for pay per view buy rates, even if he wasn't on the show. Uh, so it's just weird, crazy stuff like that where guys were getting way more cash than maybe they should have. How do you think that kind of got out of control, and what was the thinking in, in signing those type deals, or was it just a different time? Well, it's, n- it's none of the above. It's BS for the most part. You know, that, that, you know, this is the first time I've ever heard that you know, Ray Trailer had any kind of special clause in his agreement. That kind of stuff is just, is, is just I think, what people say to make themselves sound like, you know, they have an inside information or they had some, you know, unique perspective that makes them different than everybody else. But that, you know, so much of what, you know, is out there is just fabricated BS. Um, you know, there were a handful, a handful of unique agreements, Hulk Hogan being the first, you know, Bill Goldberg being, a, you know, a, another one. Um, and there may have been three or four more. You know, I, I don't have everybody's agreements clearly, you know, memorized or have access to them any longer. But I can tell you, other than a very small handful of agreements, there was very little creative structuring of deals. And with all due respect, you know, to like you know, Ray Trailer, he, he was a friend of mine. He, he took my son hunting. My son, you know, killed his first deer with Ray and Rick Steiner and myself. So this is not set out of anything other than. You know, my perspective of what was real and honest at the time, Ray was not a guy that asked for, nor should have asked for, any special consideration. So anybody that has said that that was the case is, is, is fictionalizing just to make themselves sound smart. It's not true. Yeah. Hey, well, Eric, did Ray pass? Yeah, he did. No, no, I know that, of course. But did he pass? While working for WCW or WWE, I think he was just doing independence. He was he was basically out of both companies. But yes, then. okay. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he passed away after WCW was out of business. I, okay. I, I really really liked Ray. Well, who I didn't? Yeah, big boss man. He was just a guy that you could. It was he was great to work with. He was easy. He was a pro. He was talented. Yeah. yeah. You know, you didn't have to spend a lot of time trying to explain to him what you wanted. He had a great instinct for things. Yeah. And and he just made it fun. He made yeah. the business fun. Yeah, he he was a great guy. I remember, um, I think one of the, you can ask Hulk, and Hulk could verify this, but to my understanding, because I used to see those guys from the other side, 
uh, the rate the uh, big boss man Hulk Hogan feud was one of the biggest yeah. drawing feuds uh, of all time. I mean, they they were knocking down everything, and the boss man was over and not only was he over, he could work. And when he, well, he start- worked, I mean, he's a big guy, yeah. and, and Ricky, obviously, you have a much better perspective than I do. But as a fan and a non wrestler, you know, in ring performer, um, I loved because he was big yeah. and he looked believable. He yeah. didn't look like a guy that you know was manufactured, you know, in a nuclear no. power plant. He he looked like just he looked like his character, but he could move, man. For a big guy, he could move. Yeah, the funniest story about him: we're in Richmond one night, and he was the. Uh, what was he called then when he was with Cornette? Um, oh, Big Bubba Rogers. Yeah, Big Bubba Rogers, right? And he was working with Ronnie Garvin, and Ronnie was pounding him. And he came to me one night because he knew I had worked with Garvin. I really liked Ronnie Garvin. But Ronnie, would, would he was snug, and he was beating up Bubba. I said, Bubba. He said, man, I, he had a real high voice. He said, I, I don't know what to do with this guy. <laughs> I said, that's how he talked, remember? Yeah. I, I said, if I was as big as you, I'd just haul off and hit him right in the mouth. And sure enough, the next time, because Ronnie would be knocking him, you know, beating the crap out of him like he did me, right? But Bubba popped him, man. That was it. They, everything was normal. We had an understanding. He came right. back and pulled me aside and said, thanks, thanks, thanks. That worked. <laughs> <laughs> the next week, he dropped Cornette on his head. <laughs> he jumped off the balcony. <laughs> yeah, Ray was a great guy, man. Woo. If someone relies on you financially, your spouse, your child, anyone, life insurance gives you the peace of mind that they'll have a financial cushion if something ever happens to you. By making it easy to compare your options from top companies, Goliath Life helps make sure you're not paying a penny more than you have to for the life insurance coverage you need to protect those you love. At GoliathLife.com, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. The process is fast and easy with no hidden fees, upsells, or hassles. Goliath Life is your one-stop shop to find the life insurance you need at the right price. Head to GoliathLife.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's GoliathLife.com. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender, savewithconrad.com. So let's talk about the first episode of Nitro. You know, there's kind of a famous story out there that, you know, Eric asked for, you know, an, a live show on TNT on Monday nights. And Rick, you had just recently, not too long before that, come back from the WWF at the time. And mm-hmm. uh, they had kind of launched Raw right as you were leaving. Did you think going head, going head to head, Rick, was a good plan? Or was that something that you didn't have a lot of confidence in initially? Oh, I thought it was great. I mean, I, I agreed with everything. I just... I knew because I don't even know if Eric knows this, but, you know, Brad Siegel called me and, you know, was talking about, we need to get more talent. And I went into a meeting. I don't think Eric was there. And I'm not sure. I think this was right when I first came back. And I, and that's when I said, look, at, you know, long before you worry about getting talent, because there's talent around, you got to get some from announcers coming back in. I mean, that's when they grab Bobby and, uh, and Gene Oakland. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I said, you, you know, you got those guys are as big... 
as an important of a product at WWE, I felt like they were. As, right. um, and, they, of course, they played a big role with us when they came. Um, because there were a lot of talent. It was just, uh, you know, until Eric got going, it was just, you know, we were like old school, like we talked about yesterday with, you know, with Vern and uh, with Ole, who just... You, you just couldn't think progressively. But I thought at the time, God, I wanted to be part of it. Right. Um, I thought going up against WWE was great. I mean, it wasn't anything that was going to get me in trouble with Vince. He wouldn't care. He's the one that told me to go back to WCW and have fun. Right. He, he looked right at me in, in Madison, Wisconsin. I remember the town and said, look, at, uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going with the youth. I'm going to use younger guys. So, Eric, a kind of unconventional idea at the time was to have the first Nitro at the Mall of America. How did that deal come about, and what was the thinking inside of putting it there rather than in a traditional arena? Well, there, there were there were a lot of factors, but, again, you know, you got to go back in time and kind of look at the context of WCW and where we were at. Um, you know, this was the very first Nitro. I had shut down, you know, for the most part, I, I shut down the house show business, um, prior to the launch of Nitro. And again, I'm, I'm going to go back in time just a little bit more than that because there's, a, you know, we, we leapfrog, you know, from point A to point D, you know, in a lot of interviews like this. And yeah, I'm, so I'm, guilty, I'm guilty of doing that. So, Eric, if I say something that interrupts the train of thought, please tell me to be quiet. Oh, right? I mean, it happens all the time. I yeah. do it myself. It's just, it, there's so much ground to cover and it's so easy to just to jump around. But if, if you go back, if you could, like, freeze frame where WCW was at back in 93, 94, and early 95, prior to Nitro, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the narrative that's out there, and it's been, you know, the urban legend, it's not even narrative, that's being too kind. The urban legend that has been created, you know, for so long about me and about WCW and, you know, the Monday Night Wars, there's just been so much nonsense and, and intentional you know, BS, but there's also been, you know, people just are human, and, and people tend to remember things the way it's most comfortable for them to remember, and I'm guilty of that as well, so I, I want to make that clear. But for me, I you know, I go back and I look at, at, at that time, and, you know, when, when people say, ah, oh, but you know, you had an open checkbook, I call BS on that. That's not true. When I took over WCW, it was a $24 million a year company, grossing $24 million a year, and it was losing $10 million a year in the profit. That's when I got the keys. Within a short, well, 36 months from then, approximately, we were a $300-plus million company, spending off 50 to $80 million in revenue, depending on whose accounting you wanted to look at. But before the launch of Nitro, Again, pre early '95. My goal was to cut costs everywhere I could, and you can go back and listen to interviews from you know listen to Triple H talk about the fact that I called him a GUD, a GUD, and that was my my acronym for geographically undesirable because we couldn't <laughs> afford to fly him in. You know that was and Triple H will go back and tell you that story of his first you know conversation with me when he came into WCW. You know, he probably took that as a you know a little bit of an insult, but I you know that was where we were. We were we were we were tightening our belts so much because we didn't have the money to spend. I cut down on house shows because everybody that was running the house show, the live event business prior to me taking over, they knew they were losing money every time they went out the door. But their approach to fixing that's kind of like Democrats is let's just go spend more money. 
let's do more house show. I know we lose, you know, let's say we lose $1,000 every time we do a house show, but here's how we're going to fix it. We're going to do 500 more of them. Well, you know, I suck at math. I don't even carry a checkbook, but that's, I can figure that math out. So while I was cutting and gutting and, and really trying to get control of cost, at the same time, the executives above me at Turner Broadcasting started seeing things start slowly to shift in the right directions. As things started to shift, they started giving me more and more latitude. I still had to go before the executive committee and present a, you know, a, a budget you know, one year at a time, and they would go through it line by line by line, and they would challenge me in every single aspect of it. Conrad, you're a businessman. You know what that's like. Yes, sir. Um, and, and, and that's what I went through. But I was proving the plan. As, as I went, which is why there was money in the budget for Hulk Hogan. It's why Ted Turner was willing to take a chance, because he was starting to see that, indeed, things were, it was light at the end of the tunnel. So when Nitro came about, and, and by the way, I didn't ask for that. That was thrust upon me. <laughs> and, and, and I walked out of a meeting with Ted Turner. We yeah. said, right, go do, you know, primetime Monday night on, night on TNT. That was, I, I had no idea that was coming. I, I was just going to say I remember you coming and telling me we're going to go live on Monday night because <laughs> he, he he suggested that to you, right? Yeah, I was I was literally I'll, I'll take a short time explaining the, yeah. this, but I was at a meeting. We were so close, and again, going back to what I was just previously talking about, we had been cutting costs, we had been cutting back on travel, we had cut down the house show business because it was losing money. You know, we did our our tapings down at Disney because actually it was more affordable than pack. pack <laughs> and flying people in and going and doing, you know, arena shows around the Southeast. Believe it or not, it was actually cheaper because there were economies of scale there. So, you know, that's when, you know, we got the money to start moving things. But I was in a, we were so close to being profitable, and it would have been the first time in the history of WCW since Ted Turner acquired, you know, the then you know, bankrupt NWA, that the company would turn a profit. And I knew if I could make one dollar, I didn't have to make a billion dollars. I didn't even have to make a hundred thousand dollars. If I could be the guy running the company when it made its first dollar of profit, I knew I'd be gold. Because I'd be reaffirming Ted's belief in this franchise, in that franchise. So that was my only goal. And again, now to get to the real answer to your question, we, WCW, we would go to television tapings in Gainesville, or we'd go to Greenville, or we'd go to Charlotte, or wherever. You pick a city in the southeast. And, you know, nobody in WCW before I got there, and while I was there really, early on, had any idea how to promote. And they had no, they just, it, they did a horrible job. And we would go to a TV taping, and there'd be maybe six or 800 people in the building, maybe 1,200 people in the building. And we would have papered 90% of it. They weren't paying customers. So on television, when you're looking at this show, and you're in an arena, but you, you don't want to see empty seats, so what do you do? You turn the lights down. You, you, you conceal the fact as best you can that you've got 1,500 people maybe, you know, 1,200 of them, you know, happen to get a free ticket on their windshield, you know, two hours before the show. They don't really, they weren't really fans. Small handfuls were, you know, ringside were. But for the vast majority of our television tapings in 93 and 94, 
we, we couldn't draw flies if we rolled ourselves in honey. And when, when, when Nitro you know, ended up on my lap, I knew I couldn't go to an arena because I knew I couldn't fill it, and it would look like crap. And that was our biggest problem. You know, our show, WCW, just visually, you know, we didn't, you know, to this day, I just admire the hell out of Kevin Dunn and Vince McMahon and the entire team of people underneath them. Because that show has just set the standard forever. And in terms of production qualities, to this day it does. And when you compare, you go back in 93, 94, and you look at the WCW televised product and you compare it to what WWE was putting out at the time, there is no comparison. It's just, there is none. There was none. So I knew I had to go somewhere unique. I had to I had to visually look stimulating. I had to be cool to look at. I had to be able to achieve that knowing that I couldn't put 10,000 people in a building or even 5,000 or even 3,000. So that's when the idea, you know, I had been to the Mall of America. It was like the, the biggest mall in the, in, in the United States or in the world at that time. It was getting a lot of press. And I remember that big rotunda, and I, you know, I just visualized the camera angles and the fact that it would look cool as hell, and there'd be people there, because it's in a mall, for crying out loud, but it wouldn't be dependent upon me going out and selling tickets or <clears throat> us doing what we normally did, which was paper houses. So that's how we ended up at the Mall of America. It was really out of necessity. It wasn't some great idea and some vision or you know any magic rabbit that I had in the hat. It was just like I had a gun to my head, and I had it to achieve one thing, knowing that I was up against a lot of things that would make that difficult. And what most fans remember about that first Nitro is Lex Luger coming back. And, Rick, you've actually said on the show before that you thought that Luger came back for a huge contract. But Eric wrote in his book that that really wasn't the case. What's your guys' perspective on that? And, I mean, Eric's debunked a lot of WCW myths so far. What was the situation with Luger coming back? Longtime fans remember his contract was up with WWF at the time, uh, but they didn't know that he would be making an appearance on Nitro because it was just by a day or so. Is that right, Eric? Yeah, and I don't... <clears throat> obviously, I wasn't on the WWF side of the equation. And, you know, Bruce Pritchard and I have done a lot of shows together where we, you know, kind of debate the Monday Night War. You know, him from his perspective is one of Vince's top guys, you know, on the kind of creative side of things. and operation sides of things, and then, of course, me and the other. So it's an interesting take, and I've actually learned a lot. <clears throat> Each time I do one of these with Bruce, I learn, you know, a little bit of something new. But based on what I understand, um, Luger's contract was up. I believe Vince thought that he had a verbal agreement, or if it wasn't Vince, it was somebody else, you know, that was high up in the food chain, believed that they had a handshake or an, uh, at least an understanding with Lex, and Lex knew he was coming to WCW. From my perspective, and that's how you know Lex was able to make that move and surprise everybody on the WWE side. From my perspective, I, you know, I've, I've learned, I've learned a lot. You know, I, I'm still learning every day. I learn something at 60. And one of the things I'm, I'm I've learned about myself and, and, and tried to get better at is forgiving things and and people and, and myself as well. And I, I, I want to say that about Lex Luger because I, I resented him really up until the last year or two. I had a lot of resentment towards him because of what happened with Elizabeth. And my wife was very friendly with Elizabeth and J.D. Angle, and she used to come out to our place here in Wyoming and go fishing and things. So I, 
when when Elizabeth died, it affected me, and it didn't affect me as much, but it affected my pers- perspective on Lex. And I, and I held on to that for a long time, and up, like I said, up until about a year or two ago, and finally just got over it. But even long before that, when I was just an announcer, and I was a third-string announcer that just batted cleanup for Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone, that was my role, and I was grateful for that role. And I didn't really interact with Lex all that much. I did occasionally. I would do an interview with him and things like that. And, but I watched Lex, and he was very arrogant. And, and I don't think he meant it, really. I don't think he, he thought of himself as highly as he came off. Um, I'm, I understand things better now. But the, the vibe that he gave me, and probably a lot of other people, is that he was so full of himself. Like that narcissist gimmick that he went to the WWE with wasn't a stretch for him. There's not a lot of acting involved there, really. Yeah. No, no, that's that. You're, I'm just, I'm just going to comment for one second. You're, you're accurate. That was the, it, uh, it, it used to drive everybody crazy. I mean, it didn't affect me because I was the guy that was getting them over. Um, but um, and he was easy to work with. But I, everybody was mad at me because I had to do such ridiculous stuff with him in lieu of the fact that he hadn't learned how to wrestle that well which is kind of the deal with Bill Goldberg. You know I mean? They didn't have to learn how to really work um, because they were put in a position. And as in my role, they're looking at me and going, he's in the main event with you tonight, you got to draw a house. So I'm going to go out there and do whatever I can do because, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to feed myself, but I'm trying to feed everybody else on the card. You get what I'm saying, Eric, right? Yep. Yeah, and, yep. and he, always, he always respected me, but I... You know, I won't mention names. He had everybody upside down because he talked about himself in the third person. <laughs> you can't, you can't say to Jack Mulligan, "Why would Alex Luger, why would Alex Luger put over a Dutch Mantel? Why would he even wrestle Dutch Mantel? I don't know. <laughs> You're lucky Mulligan didn't swatch you. <laughs> well, and for for me, when Alex left, it was like good riddance. You know, I never. Again, this is me personally now more than professionally. But as a, personally, when I say that, I mean as someone who just liked to watch the product and, and loved the wrestling side of things. I didn't think Lex. I just didn't see it in him. I didn't think he. I never liked watching him as a performer. I didn't. And part of it was probably because I didn't like him as a person. But just, to me, it didn't mean much. So when he left, it was like good, good riddance. Glad he's out on my hands. I'll, I'll be somewhere else. But it wasn't one of who I do, and to this day, have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for. But, you know, then I was working with Sting every day, and we had a good relationship. And so, you know, still do it to this day. We're not close by any stretch. I don't talk to him, but if I see him or when I worked with him, you know, in the past, always good relationship. But at that time, Sting was kind of, Sting and Ric Flair were two, you know, they were, that was it. Woo! Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com.